0: Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Thank you to those who are Patreon subscribers who are hearing this episode a day earlier than everybody else. And of course, advertising free if you want to hear this episode or any of the previous ones since we've been doing this uh, the last 20 or so at the very least, but there might be even more than that. I'm not sure. I started speaking without knowing the answer, which is very much what happens often on this show but you can go to patreon.com slash philosophy that's w-i-l-o-s-o w-i-l-o-s-o-p-h-y that's what it is patreon.com slash philosophy or uh, tofop.com is where you can listen to not just this podcast but you can send some mail there you can listen to the other podcasts that we make at our little indie media company that we have at TofoP, uh, we have TofoP, of course, our original podcast that has been going for over a decade now. We have FofoP, which was the spin-off of TofoP, which I'm going to get back into with brand new episodes in the next week or two. We have our AFL football adjacent podcast, Two Guys One Cup. At the moment, Charlie is doing an incredible side series where he talks to celebrity supporters of each of the teams uh, how they got into the team what their relationship with being a supporter of that team is they are excellent episodes and i highly recommend checking those out and charlie and i will get back together and do a two guys one cup at some stage very soon but this is Willosophy and thank you very much for supporting it you can go to the patreon page support for as little as a us dollar per month and in doing that you help me pay podcast mike for putting all the episodes together. You helped me pay James Fosdyke for doing the original artwork. And, uh, you know, you just actually help the show come out. So if you are a supporter of the show, then I thank you very much for the fact that uh, we can do this show weekly and sometimes more than once a week. Of course, that is our big aim for 2021. If we can get a regular uh, $5,000 plus per month on the Patreon page, we will release two episodes per week. One episode like this with a brand new guest and then one episode with a catch-up guest uh, like the episode I put out recently with Em Rassiano, her fourth appearance on the show and one I highly recommend you checking out. If you have not uh, listened to the ones that have come out this year, I think we've started really strongly. There's been some amazing guests on, Kevin, Steph, Tony, Uh, Incredible standouts. And of course, as I mentioned, Jan Fran, Paul Dempsey. There's been some really cool episodes, and we've got a couple of really excellent ones up our sleeve already for you guys to hear. But uh, today, I think you're really going to like this one. Well, I hope you are. Settle in. It's a long one. Uh, Chris and I have known each other for a long while, but we've never had the opportunity to sit down and have an in depth chat about the world in the way that we did when we recorded this. I think just after Christmas, it might have been in the break between Christmas. And New Year, and Chris was in my part of the world. So, I, we actually did this one face to face. It is one of the rare face to face interviews on philosophy these days. And in fact, it was a chat that really went for about four hours. We did about an hour of it before we started, two hours of it on air, and then kept chatting afterwards as well. But uh, here is the recorded bit. I hope you're going to enjoy it. And if you like Chris's work, then I highly recommend uh, firstly, The Weekly is back on TV Wednesday nights. You can listen, uh, you can watch, you can listen to, you can watch the weekly on ABC TV. Comes after hard quiz. Um, I assume Sean McAuliffe, is Sean McAuliffe back already? Or he might not be back yet. But uh, ABC Wednesday nights is always a huge night on the ABC. So make sure that you check it out and catch the episodes on ABC iview if you haven't caught up with them in real time. And uh, he has a new podcast. Well, it's not entirely brand new. It's a wrap of... 2020, the year we can't forget. And it's called uh, Brains Trust. Brain Trust. Brain Trust. Brain Trust. Brain Trust. Trust. Brain's Trust. It's called Brains Trust. It is narrated by Carrie Bickmore. uh, And uh, it is something that Chris has put together. He has produced and he's got a whole bunch of uh, former guests uh, from Philosophy like Annabelle Crabbe and Kitty Flanagan, Ronnie Chang, uh, Briggs. Who else? Hamish Blake. And then a few people that we haven't had on yet, like Walid and Dr. Chris Brown, all of whom would be excellent guests on this show. So at some stage, hopefully, cross, crossing the fingers, uh, we will get to have those people on. But in the meantime, this is a really cool episode and I hope you're going to enjoy it couple of other plugs just before I go. I've got some live shows. It's amazing to be able to say that. I've done a couple of my improvised What You're Talking About Will shows at the Brunswick Picture House in Brunswick Heads, New South Wales. They have both sold out uh, indoors and outdoors. And they have both been incredibly fun experiences. So we're doing it again February the 20th. The inside of the room is already sold out. But if you want to come and sit in the gardens and uh, watch the show outside on screen, which it turns out people are doing, and people are really enjoying, then uh, get along. It is cheaper than sitting inside the room and it seems to be from the reaction of the audiences a really cool experience to be able to do it that way. Uh, So that's the only tickets available then, but I'm hoping that we will do another show in March. So if you're an indoor sitter, uh, then keep your eyes peeled to the socials and at some stage we might be, if we can find a night, uh, announcing another one of those shows to happen in March. Speaking of some other shows... Melbourne International Comedy Festival, we're going to give it a go. Uh, We're going to give it another go. My show, Will Eagle, the show that I have done previously in Melbourne about being arrested, has been reworked. And I am coming to the arts centre, to the playhouse at the arts centre to do uh, two weeks of shows only. I'm not going to do the entire festival. I'm just going to come down and I'm going to do two weeks of Will Eagle. I've been doing some... uh, I've been revisiting the show, I guess, is the best way to look at it. Really, you know, through the eyes I have now and, and um, you yeah, know, changing a few things. Uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, changing my perspective on a few things, rewriting a few things. Uh, if you have seen the show before, I think it will be interesting to come and see it again. It won't be substantially different. It's a true story. So there's only so much that you can play with but my perspective I think is very different and so I've made a few changes to how the story is told that I think will tell the story more effectively and if you have never seen the show before and I know there's a lot of those people because we put this show on sale last year and It sold very, very well. We did not get to do it, but there was a lot of people who bought tickets. So I hope that you are going to be one of those people who wants to come to the Arts Centre and see me do Will Legal for the last two weeks of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And speaking of doing shows... Nothing locked in yet, but I'm hoping to do something in Canberra in the next couple of months. We are in talks in Canberra, and what I think I might try to do in Canberra is do two shows. I might come and do Will legal one night, and I might do a What You're Talking About Will one night. Anyway, to be confirmed, but uh, keep checking my socials if you're in Canberra. But those Melbourne shows are going to be on sale um, pretty much by the time that you hear this. I think at least, at very least, will be on pre-sale by the time that you hear this. So if you're in Melbourne and you want to see that show, illegal. Uh, then get in quick and come and see me at the Art Center. Fingers crossed that all goes ahead and everything is going to be fine. It is reduced seating, of course. Uh, it is a COVID safe setup and uh, it means that there are a limited number of tickets to each of the shows. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, they will all be. Uh, links to all of those things will be on my socials you know i'm a plugger i will definitely plug them all okay uh enjoy this episode today with chris walker i hope uh, you think it's a great one check out his excellent excellent podcast brains trusts the year we can't forget and uh, thank you very much as always for listening to the show
1: do have severe questions about your right muscle, your right arm, and your muscle. I can't believe that didn't go down.
0: Well, to be honest, I just started recording, oh. uh, but um, <laughs> I, I can mean, answer that. They can't come Which and is half if way there's if there's one thing that uh, COVID has uh, really changed is that my right and left arm muscles are now much more similar than they ever were. So, if my lasting legacy out of COVID is anything. It will be <laughs> Such symmetry. The realignment of my body.
1: I, well, I don't understand how that happened.
0: Have I you, don't you well, got to the bottom of that. I don't understand how it happened either, other than I think that at some stage in my life I developed my right bicep to be much bigger than my left. And then just in a general maintenance way, it stayed that. But because I think Because I wasn't really specifically... When I exercised or did weights or did anything like that, I think I just did an equal amount on both. Whereas, like, if you're trying to readjust something, you probably have to do less on the one that's big and then... You're like like, a
1: right-armed Rafael Nadal.
0: I mean, it really did feel like... I I think, again, I have no real idea why, other than I am right-handed and the majority of the things that I did were with my right
1: hand. But it was like a bicep. But it was like a like you you don't get that from riding, riding, you know writing a note to yourself it'd be a weird way to write if it was working
0: your <laughs> bicep do you know what i mean but also that was like you know people would always be like well we all know yeah. why you've got a big right arm yeah. and i was like but that's also a weird way to wank if that is <laughs> the accusation that you're going with because i,
1: no, I, I was annoyed i was, just, I was it'd
0: be more like a strong tricep from <laughs> masturbation whereas like bicep isn't technically how most people I, when i first
1: saw it i pissed myself and then i was annoyed because yeah. i was like Fuck, how's he keeping his right arm? So, like, I'm doing push ups every yeah. day, and it's like these things don't grow. And here, you hadn't, according to your stand up, hadn't mm. done exercise for however long. And, just ripped out of your mind? Well, I think, well, one arm ripped out of my <laughs> mind.
0: Like one arm Popeye and one arm olive oil. That was actually what it was. Oh, that's a joke that's way too late for the stand-up routine I don't you do anymore. Plug
1: that back into the special. <laughs>
0: plus, plus now my biceps are actually equal again, so it doesn't even fucking work. I'd have to go into specific training to be able to, to do that, that joke guy. on stage. <laughs> uh hello and welcome to philosophy with will anderson i am will anderson from the title of the podcast you've already heard today's guest and you already know who it is because of course you've downloaded the episode and you've looked at james Fosdike's amazing art but there is a protocol to how i start these conversations and this is how it
1: starts i ask the guests who they are so who are you i am chris walker i um amongst other things, am sort of collateral in Carrie Bickmore's pap shots. (laughs) (laughs) Just a half a a fat head in the side. And um, I am... My day job, I guess, is producing um, Hard Quiz and The Weekly with Charlie Pickering.
0: So how did you become a TV producer?
1: How does one become a TV producer? It's a good question. So I think a big part of it was probably avoiding being a lawyer. So I... um, yeah, you know, I had a. I went to to I did um, arts law at uni, and then when I sort of worked out pretty rapidly that I didn't want to become a lawyer, which is I would have been. I mean, a lot of people say I would have been a great lawyer. I would have been actually would have been a terrible lawyer. And I ended up then doing a postgraduate degree in journalism. Um, and I'd always loved stories since I was a kid. Like when I was five years old, I used to write write Choose Your Own Adventures, and I was very much into stories. I love musicals. Love. You know all that sort of stuff okay movies i was obsessed with movies i you know i watched seinfeld i reckon probably every episode about 30 or 40 times and anyway so after i'd done journalism i ended up um lucky luckily sort of landing i wrote an article actually for the just um for my uni course that ended up getting published in the age what was the article it was about um Uh, I mean, this will be boring for our non-AFL lovers on this podcast. Oh,
0: there's plenty of times on this podcast that's boring for (laughs)
1: non-AFL lovers. (laughs) You'll appreciate it. Um, It was an article about Russell Green, who played about 300 and odd Mm -hmm. games for St Kilda and Hawthorne, and his son, who I went to school with, and who had a much shorter career than his dad. And his dad had quite severe depression when he finished. I grew up, he was my PE teacher at school. So I wrote a a sort of a, a dichotomy article about how his career went really well, but he really, really battled. And Steve, who was much younger, um, and his career was nowhere near as successful, but sort of prospered um, in retirement. And that was they were, they were kind enough to print it in the age. And then so I started like hawking off this article to everyone that would, would say, you know, I just need a job in media. And then I ended up luckily landing a job um, reporting for the VFL when I was like 26. And this was like was like a dream come true. You know, I was like still at uni getting, you know, paid to, to go to footy games. And... Um, yeah and then so sort of, sort of from that it just I think the first job in TV I had was like working on the rich list with Andrew O'Keefe, which was like I was like a, a researcher um, for Andrew while he was um yeah, being Andrew, being Andrew <laughs> 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 I was like- defamation
0: (laughs) everybody understands what that means Uh, so um, okay so what was the rich list I remember uh, one of the things that Amy and I have done a lot and people have heard me talk about this on the show before but one of the things we've done a lot during lockdown is our comfort TV is a television show by the name of Gogglebox both the Australian version but also the UK version which is like like, 14, 15 series of and so we go back and I think we enjoy the ones... The historical ones more. This is what I would say to people about Gogglebox. Almost don't watch it when it comes out. Wait like five years and then go back and watch it because there are so many shows that you forgot existed. Or, of course, if you're watching the UK one, shows that you didn't even know know existed, but these people are living in an everyday sense. It is really a fascinating time capsule. So take us back to the Rich List. What was the Rich List?
1: the Rich List was good. I I really liked the Rich List. It really appealed to me. Mm. So basically what you had to do is there was two teams... And you had to profit how many, you'd get a list. So it'd be like Tom Cruise movies. Okay. And if it was you, let's say it was you versus me, mm-hmm. Will, and you'd be like, Chris, I can do, I can name 10. And I'd be like, no, I can name 14. And if I can get to 14, I win. And I get the points for getting the 14. But if I don't get to 14, it then passes to you. And then you can fill the gaps. And then you get the points. So let's say I'd got through, you know, Vanilla Sky, you know, Mission Impossible, one, two, mm. three, four, ten. Um Interesting podcasts. that
0: you led with Vanilla Sky, by the way. That's a whole of all the Tom Cruise well, the movies only reason, only reason. to lead with is Vanilla Sky. Oh well, of course we'd all firstly lock in Vanilla
1: Sky and then after that. <laughs> <laughs> So the only reason I went with Vanilla Sky was because a mate literally yesterday told me a story about how he got so blitzed on weed that he watched Vanilla Sky for 30 minutes in Spanish only to turn to his mate and go, man, do you understand what's going on? And like... and of course, you don't understand what's going on in English. But, it's like... but yeah, it's probably not his best, is it?
0: Okay, so all right, so you were at the Rich List. Um, you're working as a researcher at the Rich List. I worked
1: as a researcher at the Rich List, and that that um, that ended up getting me because that was on Channel Seven. That mm-hmm. ended up getting me another sort of dream job where I got to work in the commentary box um for the AFL, um, which I was, oh, I was just oh, just completely and totally unprepared and ill-equipped for. But it was great. I got to sit next to, to Nathan Buckley while he, he was back when he was doing special comments for Channel Seven and. Lee Matthews and Bruce McEvaney who was such a pro um and it was great it was just an awesome job I was flying you know flying around the country watching footy you know I couldn't believe my luck kind of thing um it's like I was you know I thought I'd be in a you know in a lawyer's office doing mergers and acquisitions or whatever and um so and I did that for two years uh and then and then the project came along um and I became a researcher that and then I sort of quickly pretty quickly rose through the ranks of through the project and became the sort of the series producer of that. And then the what they called the managing editor of that. So it was like the, I guess, like the co-EP, I guess you'd call it. And then started a company with um, some mutual mates of ours, Charlie Pickering and your manager, Kevin White. And um, yeah, and then, so, you know, so I'm sort of been doing that now for seven years.
0: I would say that's like, you know, it's kind of very established now, you know, the fact that you've been doing that. I mean, it really is... I guess, like, is it how you define yourself professionally now? Do you think of yourself as being, you know, a television producer? Is that... Um,
1: I'm really uncomfortable with that. Why? Um, because I think I have a real... I mean, this is probably goes back into quite a bit of my psychology, which maybe we, we can we can talk about. Um, I, I hate the idea of having to stay in my lane. So being called something like a television producer means I'm a television producer and I, I, all I can ever do is tell him and to be honest, this podcast that I've done that was, that we may, or, we may or may not talk about that the, has just released a big part of the motivation for that on top of just the social document of talking about 2020 was to not, to get out of my lane a little bit. And, and I prefer to sort of think of what I do in life as a sort of a slightly more amorphous, just, I like creating things and making things and being involved in, in teams that make things and collaborating things and just making the best possible stuff, whether that's for TV or for, you know, radio or, or whatever, a book or, um, I don't know, like, I mean it wouldn't even necessarily have to be creative. Um, but, but yeah, I guess, I mean, like, there's no doubt that the thing that I've been most successful at has been TV producing.
0: Okay, but producing in general is yeah. what we're really talking about yeah. here—creative producing. Yeah, yeah. I understand that. I'm an executive yeah. producer of a you know a television program. program, but I, you know, am also the
1: executive producer of this program you're currently appearing on. Although I think it's a much, I think it's much different <clears throat> coming from your way in. Mm. I think talent. So tell me why. Well, truth is, I don't know why, um, but. You will very rarely hear someone tell. Let's just call it talent. It's not a word, you know. That's a word that. It's a TV industry word. It's TV industry word yeah. about effectively on-air people, mm. um, and I feel like <laughs>
0: the on-air dickheads
1: <laughs> are on-air. referred to <laughs> yeah, that's as that's, that's the that's talent, right. <laughs> as opposed that's to that's the people
0: that's... who do all the work to make <laughs> the talent look good.
1: <laughs> and I think you, you very rarely hear. Um, you very rarely hear someone say to to talent they can't become a producer or they can't become this or they can't Mm. become. in fact if anything the world has opened up to them that's like you know you should become an actor you should become this you should become a writer you should do this you should do a children's book you should do all of which i'm up for Mm. i'm not being i think that's great but if you come from the other way in like if you're a producer first or a writer first it just feels a little bit like people are more like stay in your station a little bit um and i'd love to break that and i try and i definitely try and you know with our staff and our company and stuff i definitely try and encourage everyone to 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 cross pollinate like if some you know because this may be boring to everyone but even in tv shows everyone's broken into production and editing and graphics and um you know writers and creatives and stuff and i you know if someone there's been plenty of people who said oh you know i'd love to do this and i'm like well fuck do it like
0: one of the things i love the most about having worked on gruen for as long as i have is that so many of the roles of people there are filled with people who used to do different roles so you know people who started in an entry level position yeah. who are now you know head writers of the show or yeah. producers of the yeah. show or you know pitch yeah. producers yeah. or series producers and we share
1: some of those people and Exa- they absolutely incredible people you know?
0: and but to have seen them go from you know that idea of you were working in one specific place yeah. and then have a door open that goes well maybe you can try this yeah. and you know I've got another project that I'm working on next year where some of the people who work on Groom will be offered yeah, great. different roles, yeah. you know, like promotional ro- yeah. pro- not promotional, but promotion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <The> <laughs> will yeah. promotion team. Sorry, did I say promotion? <laughs> I meant
1: promotional. <laughs> We're bringing back Black Thunders for the show, guys.
0: You're going to be in a bit of shopping center? <laughs> 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 yeah,
1: well, that's right. I mean, that's that's good. I mean, I love to he- I love hearing that. In fact, I remember, it's actually a funny story. But one, I think one of the first times I met you, Actually, it might have been the second time I met you. You probably won't. I seriously doubt you'll remember this, but um, I um, flew up to Sydney. So this is when we were starting the week, It's about seven years ago, and I said to John Casimir, um, who, f- uh, for the listeners, is a a mutual friend of ours, but also used to be the head of ABC Entertainment. Yeah, but
0: before that was one of the co- creators, co- creators of, um, of Gruen. So he and Andrew Denton created Gruen together.
1: Exactly. So and he and I said to him before we started the weekly, you know. And I was like, you know, fuck, you know, I'm a bit pretty nervous. Like we're starting a show at eight thirty. You know, can I come up and have a look at Gruen and see how they operate? You know, because you guys had, you know, obviously been kicking ass for a fair while by then. And I got <laughs> the funny story is I got there and I was, I was like completely, you know, I was only thirty three or something, and I was like, you know probably you know half not knowing what I was doing I was dressed in a ridiculous blazer and I was sitting in this and I was sitting in the, I was sitting on my own and the, and you wanted you wanted in track tracksuit pants and thongs and you went and you look at and and John sort of politely said oh Will, this is Chris and you go where would you come off the set of Miami Vice <laughs> And I remember, I remember at the time, and I was like, and I was like, oh, I knew I'd overdone it. And I, like, and I was like, and I remember thinking, oh, you bastard! And then at the end, I was like, flying home, I go, fuck, that was pretty funny. You know? And of course, because it was your house, I couldn't go. Well, mate, what's in the fucking thoughts? But anyway, and I remember, but I remember being there and 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 watching you guys do your thing, and um, you know, and it was you know, I've learned I, it was because John said, I don't think you'll learn that much from coming up. And I was like, Oh, let me come up anyway. And I actually did. Um, Cause it, you, I think you sort of shared that sort of sense of like, Hey, you know, this is a team, you know, yes, you've got jobs and they need to come first, but you know, you can cross pollinate.
0: Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. And I think that we're all in the same business. And um, I also believe that, you know, the greatest legacy that you can leave is to, yeah, you know, in other people's, like one of the great bits of advice that comes up so often in this, but I got given it by Ted Robinson very early on when I was making The Glass House in that same studio mm. at the ABC back in the day. And he said, just remember it's everyone's, try to remember it's everyone's day at work. Yeah. And so, I, it's still one of the best bits of showbiz advice I've ever got because particularly as the host of something and yeah. then of course when you are not just the host but you're also the EP, the so boss, you're, the boss, yeah. you're the boss, you know, boss, yeah. you're both. Yeah,
1: hey, you, you, you. It's part. Of, their welfare is part of your job
0: right absolutely is part of your job yeah. but also that it is the great joy of your job yeah you know seeing people grow yeah seeing them have their opportunities realized in the way that you've had your opportunities realized is right. one of the greatest things that yeah you and can i think episode. that i
1: think that as i've got older i mean this could possibly be a byproduct i mean we could both be talking from just sheer good fortune mm-hmm. as much as anything and that we're both had some success and i think that i i reckon i used to be really competitive like like i was trying to climb up and like competitive with who i mean i think mainly myself Mm. but but i would judge myself on other people's where other people were sitting mm. in the, in the production oh, so. or
0: um- what you're saying is you're a human being. <laughs> Interesting.
1: <laughs> no, no, what no, a like unique perspective found- you brought to the podcast today, Chris. Sorry. Fucking hell. This, will, this, this is going to break through the roof. This one. No, but um, I was a bit, but you know, I think as I've got older and stuff, what you're saying hmm. has become much more of what's important to me about making anything is that everybody, not that everybody has just a good time is kicking back, but everybody has the same, like everyone is, in on the same vision and wants the same vision to be realised and it's not it's not competitive against the, the person next to you and all the stuff and and you know I'm really lucky because like both our t- teams the hard quiz team and the, and the weekly team which are our biggest shows there's another one but um, they they're I mean you'd go to war with them so, what's your. I mean, you would actually go to war I made mean, I mean, absolutely terrible, terrible, terrible people to
0: go to war with. <laughs> yeah. The war would be over very, very quickly. Yeah. I look at that group of people and yeah. I say, you yeah. are great people yeah. Yeah. to. I mean, half what, of them are vegan. What <laughs> I would like to say is, you would make a television show with them. Yeah. If you were going yeah. to make another television show, you would choose those people right. yeah. to make a television yeah. Yeah. show I'll with. Chill out on the metaphor. Yeah. Sorry, guys. <laughs> In fact, you'd be terrible choices to go to war with. <laughs> um, okay, so what is your philosophy, dear? leadership because you are a leader now like and i think that some of that ambitious ambition about competitiveness and i think it's you know needed probably anyone who tells you That they're not competitive, who have achieved great success, is probably lying or diminishing in some kind of way. It just gets to the point in your life whether that competition is healthy or not healthy. That's right. I think competition is absolutely fine, and being competitive is absolutely fine. It's just whether it is a healthy manifestation of those things or not.
1: That most people aren't that competitive, and so if anything, instilling some level of competition in, in in our teams is what's quite difficult. Um, so, cause you want, like the thing is shows get better and all creative things get better when people want to make it better and they want to make themselves better. So they have to compete either against themselves or something. Um, but you just don't want that to be at the expense of collaboration. Like, um, and that's obviously a really tricky line of which I'm, ne- I seriously doubt I'll ever work out exactly, um, what the, you know, what the science of that is. But, um, I guess my, my really, like sort of my philosophy to leadership which I'm sort of I'm in the process of work, uh, working on, um, with a professional actually, and um, but I, I guess what it's been. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll start with what what I where I think I've got it wrong. Great, and we'll get to
0: love that. No, yeah. That's a good. I reckon that's always a great yeah, place I to start. I think
1: I based a lot of my qualities as a leader on being not being everything that previous bosses weren't, mm-hmm. right? Which which has been effective but it's like okay that boss did that and i didn't think that was very good so i'm going to do the opposite of that and this boss did that and this boss did this and and so sort of i guess like the way that a child learns from a parent or you know and and, and then i would also then take on the positive parts of their you know like this boss was particularly fastidious about every frame so that seems like a good thing to be doing and this person was you know uh, you know had an open door policy which seemed to work really well and so I'll instill that but i think and I, and I sort of I think I take kind of like a footy coach approach, you know, like um, which has really amounted to just to the to, to one problematic thing, which is is work harder than everybody else in the room, all the time, and so be there first, be and you know, leave last, all that stuff that probably is much more of our generation than the new generation, um, and obsess about everything and 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 re obsess re obsess and re obsess and re obsess. And I mean that on top of that, just being unsustainable, especially when the things grow and there's more of them, um, you can't expect everyone else to care about it and love it as much as you do. So I've got to find a way to bridge the gap. I think between wanting the best possible product, but want but having everybody in on it all of the time. Um, so I'm I'm not sure if that makes sense to you, but um, or if that resonates with you, but. That's where I feel like I could improve my leadership.
0: I think uh, one of the things you're talking about is this idea of, and I firstly totally understand the idea of, uh, you know, having, it's part of our generation because how old are you? I'm nearly 40. Yeah. Okay. So I'm 40 six yep. um i get confused by my age because uh, my partner amy has no idea how old i am and it's, <laughs> it's one of our favorite things to do is like just me to ask her randomly how old she thinks i am and there's about a five-year range of <laughs> ages she will guess she just, just forgets she's like 44 48 yeah. like close know, enough close enough somewhere in the zone i'm 46 years old so like, you look, sim- you look 40 similar generations yep. right so that idea of you know showing you know the first thing that you can show is showing up yeah you know get there on time leave the latest obsess about everything but then there is a point which it feels like the point that you're at now which is when you realize obsessing about everything doesn't give agency to those who could be obsessing about some of those things on your behalf correct right like you've got to empower other people you can't helicopter parent that's right. your staff you've got to empower them to be able to go out there yeah. and do things by themselves and, and they
1: can do it better than you too like, right that's the
0: thing <laughs> like, much better yeah well, it correct. turns out a group of people working together yeah. can do something yeah. better than you just doing yeah. it all yourself yeah but you then have to rationalize when it is important for you to still step in yeah like those moments where because that doesn't mean abdicating leadership no, because that's the mistake that some people make they go okay well I'll, let, well, I'll leave everyone to their own devices and I'll abdicate yeah. leadership no. I mean, there's still one of my least favorite things to do is on a Monday morning, because we tape on a Tuesday, and on a Monday morning when we're having like our, you know, really sort of this is what we think the show will look like tomorrow, one of my least favorite things to do, because we've all worked pretty hard on the show by that point, is to sit in that meeting and say, hey, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. I hate it. It, it, it gives me no pleasure to tell a bunch of people who've been working their ass off mm. to get something right that it's not right. And it's very rare that I have to do it. But occasionally, I have to do it. And on the mornings when I have to do it, I fucking hate my job. I hate the fact that I know that I'm going to have to go in that meeting. I know I'm going to have to... Like, people are going to have to work longer. They're going to have to chuck stuff out they've worked really hard on. We're going to yeah. have to reimagine it. But that's that's my job. That's why they pay me you know the money to make those calls,
1: right
0: ABC bucks. big abc mm. bucks in relation to the abc big bucks mm. in relation to anything else small oh. bucks <laughs> but in our room that is my job there's still times when you need to lead but it's knowing when you can leave people to their own devices versus when you need to
1: leave so i am interested in that processor i mean this is nuanced but when you say you hate that do you hate it because you feel anxious about how they're gonna they're gonna feel?
0: I think mostly I hate it because I my, my general joy is from empowering them to be able to do it themselves. Right? There was a time I'll give you a practical example, and I'm sure that. Um, he won't mind, but you know this guy and you know what a great genius he is. Mm-hmm. So James Colley, mm-hmm. who, you know... Yeah, uh, one of
1: your head writer and now our head writer?
0: Uh, absolute point. fucking mm-hmm. genius writer. Mm-hmm. Like... You know, started, you know, as our kind of like writer's assistant mm-hmm. at Gruen, same sort of thing at the weekly. Started like, you know, yeah, six years seven I think he's yeah, started when we kinda basically on the lowest rungs worked in way through to, you know, being the most important writer in the fucking building. And so we're very lucky at Gruen. We have Sophie Bram and uh James Colley and they are two superstars. Superstars. Mm-hmm. Absolute fucking superstars. And I love working with them. I love their writing. Um, Last season, you know, the way that our, this season it was a co head writing operation. So they literally would split up parts of the show. Um, but last season, James was doing monologues. You know, that was like, you know, his main focus was monologues. And so we would work together, but like he would often run with something. And there was just one day where we couldn't get it to work how I wanted to get it to work. Mm. And on the, and what normally that will mean in a practical sense, maybe this is too inside baseball for people, but we're sitting there in rehearsal. And I'm trying to get the monologue to work and I just can't get it to land how I want it to land. Mm -hmm. And normally the process of that will be that James will go away on his computer or write me a few options. I'll be like, I don't like this bit or this isn't really working how it's like, and he'll go and write some jokes, you know, like and bring them back and then maybe I'll rewrite them and massage them or make it work. And there was just one point last year where we were running out of time. And I said, you're just gonna have to give me the computer. And like I will, and then I just sit there and I write it. Because I know that I can do that, yeah. but they, that's not actually my job on the show. No. Like my job on the show is to, you know, be the creative executive producer of the show. It is to f- choose people and facilitate people and encourage people yeah. and provide them with information to be able to do that job themselves. On the day when I have to grab the computer, mm. there is a mixture of firstly, I hope that they don't feel embarrassed by it. Mm. You know that they feel like somehow they're not doing their job, mm. because that was nothing about him not doing no. his job. Yeah, it was just one of those things mm. where, and it's not even that what I wrote was better. It's just a tough day on the field than haven't. what he wrote. Yeah. It was just the day where I knew what I needed to to have and get it to I get. Mean, it's it interesting
1: done, because you right? have a double job. Do you know what I mean? Like you're not just the executive producer of the show; you're the host of the show. So it's right. It's it is like I think it is, it is different because and also. My guess is that most people in that room would, I would almost, to a man, would say you're the best writer in the room. You've been doing stand-up for what, 25 years?
0: Yeah, okay. Well, I think you're right. There is an element of that at least when I do that, I have runs on the board Correct. of having written a whole yeah. bunch of things, right? Yeah. Including in the past, a huge chunks of that mono, you know. Yeah, yeah. But what I've loved about the experience of the show is now that it's often just, what's the idea? Here's what I like about it. Let other people run with it. Yeah. So if we get into a Monday morning meeting, and there's a big chunk of the show that isn't working and i know that it isn't working my first anxiety and it generally is a bit of an anxiety is i don't want to tell these great people who i don't want to undermine their confidence Mm. i don't want them to think that they have done a bad job because they haven't done a bad job it's never because someone's been out all weekend and hasn't Mm. done their writing or hasn't done their research properly it's just that it's not working Mm. and somebody Needs to be the sort of person who can say, yeah. "This isn't working. Hey guys, we've yeah. got to go away." And I'm incredibly lucky that I have, um, you know, a team that then will just, we'll just fucking run with that. Yeah. And, I think, and I think that's part of it. Yeah. I think part of it is I know that if I say that, yeah. they'll all yeah. stay late and yeah. do extra work. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> there
1: was fucking <laughs> <laughs> you might not grab the computer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's possibly inside baseball this, but I mean, yeah. we have a similar, I have a slightly similar dynamic. In okay,
0: there. so do you tell me what yours is.
1: Well, I mean, I guess that I, I I imagine if we could have some of my the writing staff on the shows with us here, they would say, I'm pretty blunt and I'll just, I'll come in, you know, they've usually done several reads and writes and stuff before I see it. And then when I see it, I kind of go, well, that's pretty disappointing or whatever. <laughs> and I don't mean it to be like, I don't mean that they're disappointed, uh-huh. obviously, and I I actually keep it blunt on purpose because if it's dispassionate in that room and they they're now used to me being dispassionate in the room, they know that it's not. Well, I hope they know it's not an insult on their right, and because I I tell them so often how much I have how much I think of them and what they do a thing that I can't do. Um, you know, which makes the job even weirder when you think about it. Like, it's like you're telling like say someone that doesn't work, it's something you can't do yourself. It's um, so like, you know, like when Michael Jordan's saying, mate, can you dunk it better? At least he can do it. <laughs> 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 but um, anyway, so yeah, I guess, I mean, I have, a, I mean, I guess I have a similar anxiety um, about, t- you know, ruining people's day, but, but in the end, I think what you said is right. Like people tend to respond and, in the end everyone sort of when it goes on everyone goes oh yeah that was the right plan like it was good that we did it was good that we threw it out and started again
0: okay so we, we started all that and this has become a little bit too much about me so i'm gonna you know take it back to being much more about you okay. which is you said that you were actually working with someone professional around yeah. your leadership and so can you talk to me a
1: little bit about that yeah i mean it's in its early phases um, admittedly but um in fact, uh, I spent a, I've spent a bit of time talking to your mate Todd Sampson, um, who seems to know everything about everything, um, <laughs> um, uh, about you know what I should and shouldn't do as a leader and, and that sort of stuff. And um, it re- to be honest, it really comes from my history of speaking to professionals about personal stuff, um, and just the sort of the impact that's had on my life. I just figured that. You know, this is something I haven't really, I haven't really attended to. I haven't, have needed, I haven't had the time to, I haven't needed to until now. And I'm probably coming up to forty, and I've been a boss long enough to go. Well, it's probably time to reevaluate it.
0: Um, were there genuine parts of it that you didn't think you could handle yourself? Is that why you need to talk to somebody
1: else about it, or was it just that just idea think, of just I was worried about what I was ignorant of? It's mm-hmm. so like what don't I know? Like, um, it's been, you know, it's been a while since I've worked for someone else and you sort of, when you work for someone else, you learn a lot, like you learn about, and, you know, I've sort of been doing this thing my way now for six or seven years. And I just think it's, it would be hubristic to not check in and just see if there's a better way to do it. Um, and look, and as I said, it's early stages, but already I can see that, you know, there are different ways. Um, And it's also, I think, also a symptom of, like, I've got three kids. Like, I've got a 13-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 2-year-old. And it's like, I can't keep going at this pace um, for their sake um, and mine and my partners. Um, Otherwise, you know, they'll hate me.
0: Okay, so talk to me about that, the idea of, like, work-life balance, which is something that, you know, is easily said but not as easily enacted and you've got a obviously a family relationship where you both have you know pretty demanding full-time careers so how is it that you you know balance you know that work-life relationship
1: Um, not that well I don't reckon um I mean well in the sense that I think we're both great I just think we I just yeah I guess I think that we we throw ourselves at our uh, well actually I'm not gonna speak for Carrie but I, I, I throw myself so hard at work that I become so myopic and so blinkered to what I'm doing that like I think it's the most important thing in the world and it's like and then your kid says something cute and you're like what the fuck why was I worried about whether Charlie said like that verb like does it matter like no one on top of the fact that i mean people watch tv they're like they don't notice and it's like you know whether that graphic had a you know this colored date on it or like whatever and and so i think that um yeah the work-life balance thing is interesting like i think covid having had this year probably so like we really slowed down we had you know we didn't have to go to dinners and 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 events that that you, you would rather say no to. Um, all the Saturday, Sunday sport for, for our 13 year old dropped off and our five year old as well. So we had a lot of time on the weekends together and it was sort of like, shit, is this how good families are? Um, and so a big part of, yeah, my desire to be a better leader is also to work smarter and work in a way that gives them much more of me. And cause like, I mean, I'm sure that you have the same thing, especially when it shows on. Like, you have to kind of be available 24 seven because the way we produce our show, it is produced over the weekend as well as the as well as during the week, um, and because it's a news based show, the news is pretty relentless. Um, um, and you know, and all and obviously all the decisions eventually are my problem, even if I even if I've delegated them. Um, so I at least have to be aware of them, even if I make them myself. Um, so. Yeah. I just, I think it's work-life balance is like, it's, it's exactly what you said is like, Oh, like we talk about it. Like, um, it's this thing that we need to do and we need to do it in the future. We need to get there in the future. And it's like, (laughs) at some point we'll be balanced like fucking some Buddhist (laughs) monk. And it's like, Hey, you know, and I, you know, and you, 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 I mean, I live with lots of regret generally, um, for a bunch of reasons, but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty determined now to not regret missing time with them and my partner. So, um,
0: you know, it's a big juicy hook for me to, you know, follow down the path of, you know, why you live with regret. So I'm going to ask about it and tell me, you know, as much as you feel comfortable telling me about, but why, why do you live with regret?
1: Um, I think there's probably, well, I think that probably the place to start would be there's sort of, two, uh, my, I've, I've essentially been bullied by my thoughts my entire life. Uh-huh. So I suffer from chronic OCD. Um, I have a very strange, not strange, but a pretty, a rareish form of OCD. Like it's not the hand washing. It's not the, I mean, if there's the ordering thing has come and gone and, um, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's a version of OCD called scrupulosity, which is like about religious stuff. And we can talk about that in a second, but so that, that has been a very defining, um, overwhelming part of my existence. Um, when I was nine years old, um, I was playing cricket in the backyard with my cousin and my brother and, um, my memory's like it gets, it, it fades all the time and I'd be like flashes of imagery and stuff. But, um, I think maybe my brother bowled the ball and my cousin, you know, hit a beautiful cover drive down the driveway under the gate, across the road. My 13 year old brother walked across the road to collect the ball. And I went out to, cause I was here. You know, he was my hero. I, was, I was dotingly, you know, walked out to follow him and watch what he's doing. And then on the way back, um, car smashed him to him and, killed him um, and you know which was obviously um, you know enormously traumatic and painful and and it's hard to know whether or not you know on top of the overwhelming grief that my family, my mum and dad, my sister um, and the rest of the family felt, it's hard to know whether the, the OCD is a byproduct of that incident or whether you know, we don't know heaps about OCD but whether or not I would have had it anyway but certainly the content of the OCD which was around the idea that if I don't do certain things and my mum and my mum sort of sort of like passed in and out of religion at that time and like sort of like a quasi-Anglican um and it sort of I sort of quickly developed this system in my brain of this like wishful fantasy of like if I do certain things or think that certain things um I can keep everyone alive um you know and sort of that was sustainable because I was a kid, you know, like your brain is in wishful thinking mode. It's, you know, Santa, like, like for example, that night he died on Christmas Eve. And that night I of course was expecting Santa to come down the fucking chimney and give me presents. And my uncle came up and said, you know, on top of the fact that my parents then had to walk up and give us the presents. It was fucking brutal. And then, you know, my my Catholic uncle told me about how my brother Adam's gone into a a room in heaven and oh shit. And, um, and, um, so I, yeah, so I developed this sort of, this defense mechanism, to, you know, depending on how you want to view it, but of, of keeping the rest of my loved ones alive. And that quickly, by the time I was 12 and 13 and then 14, it was pretty full on. Like, it was like, I would wake up in enormous dread, like huge waves of, like huge waves of tidal waves of anxiety it would often take me, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, um, just to get out of bed. Um, cause I had to do all these rituals and I had to think things and pray things. And, um, and, and the way OCD works is you can, ne- you never get it right. And, and so, um, you know, so then I obviously, and I was, so by then I was seeing psychiatrists and, you know, taking medication and, and it became harder, you know, the other thing sort of fell apart. Like it's like, even though I was young, like sort of friendships sort of became harder because I was like, I was, you know, I was putting myself under so much duress. Like at one point I remember I, for whatever reason set the, the OCD was saying, you can't talk until recess or such and such will happen. And it was pretty difficult to get to recess without talking. Cause you got to get through preschool assembly, two classes and, um, so you know, so I, you know you just become otter and odder. And,
0: and I and assume you're, you're not different. telling anybody about these no, and things. and it's back in
1: the time when... So my dad is a nephrologist who's a kidney doctor, mum's a nurse, so they're from a medical, very much a medical, but even in know out, like... And my mum, I think, had some mild OCD and to a large degree that their view, I think, you know, I don't want to do them an injustice here, but it was kind of like you'll grow out of it, mm. um, which is just not the case, obviously. And, um, and so... I guess, I, and certainly with my friends and and other people, I was never. I would never bring it up. I would never say anything. I would never, you know, and I, you know, and, and people sort of pitied our family anyway because we had this story where, right. you know, um, the kid that was in year seven in our school got wiped out by a car, and um, and um, so so I guess to, to come full circle to your initial question is in terms of regrets, like. So much of my, my time has been spent ruminating and like counting and, and like, uh, you know, trying to unpack theology and like all this fucking nonsense that you just, you know, that I'm just repeating in my head, you know, with this sort of solipsistic view that I can protect mum and dad and my sister. Um, and so I regret how much time I've wasted. Um, you know, and um, like the, perhaps the most painful, like the bit that always makes me sort of really choke up, is I remember, you know, um, after I I'd, I'd met Carrie and Ollie was about five years old, um, so Ollie who was born from uh, Carrie's late husband, and so I sort of I guess am um, now his father fig- have been his father figure for sort of eight eight years I guess and I see him as my own son, but I remember I just like when I was five years old, we, we went on a holiday and he, and I was just so unwell. And I just was, this is like when I was, you know, 30 something. So I was really struggling and, and cause it comes and goes and whatever. And he came in and he wanted just, all he wanted to do was make sandcastle with me. He like, he came back from the beach to get me. Cause I was like, I was kind of in bed. I was pretty, I was pretty rat shit. And I was just like, I'll come I'll, I'll, I'll come definitely coming, buddy. I'm definitely coming. And, um, and I just like, couldn't get out there. And I was just like, I just like, I've never like, I've never forgiven myself for that, for that thing, just making sandcastles with him. Um, and yeah, so I guess the regret is that, I mean, obviously I have the, re- the regret, like the genuine regret is I wish, I wish I'd fielded the ball that day, or I wish I'd said a different thing and life would have taken a different fork, but then having that not happened, I wish that I hadn't spent so much fucking time in my own head.
0: I, um, firstly, just I did not know that was what was coming when I asked that question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 That's no, the best reaction I've ever had.
1: I don't, think I've actually, I don't think I've actually had to tell that story in like 10 years.
0: Um, I mean, just an incredibly, you know, traumatic thing for anybody to go through clearly. Mm. Like, I mean, I don't think it needs to be overstated because I think everybody inherently understands mm. what an incredible tragedy that is for you. And, you know, for your family and, you know, for your brother. And and what uh, – I cannot, can only, you know, listen to you, you know, tell your story and how you reacted and mm. from the outside, you know, just have this overwhelming feeling of, yeah, well, that makes sense. Mm. Like that makes sense that if you're a kid – like, you know, what you're saying, the yeah. idea that you somehow think that you could have, yeah. you know, changed that circumstance. Yeah, as a rational it is, it's
1: kind of rational. Yeah. It's weird.
0: It does make sense. Mm. And of course it does. Mm. But what an incredible weight to, you know, have to live with. And then as I, you know, hear you tell this story, you know, about your children and, you know, the idea that you, you understand inherently that you have to break that cycle somehow because... Mm you know, you don't want to pass it on, you know, to that next generation. But I imagine even the idea of having children of your own must have come with at least some fear because of that.
1: So I think the thing that I've actually been thinking about this a lot in sort of the wake of 2020 is that the way I've just and 2020 has easily been my, the best year in terms of how mild the symptoms of OCD are by miles. And I don't know, I don't actually know why I did, I have done a lot of exposure therapy with a psychiatrist over mm-hmm. the last two or three years, which was incredibly powerful. Like, you know, like about sort of four or five years ago, I couldn't go into work. I had to stay in my car because I was just crippled with anxiety. And then I said, oh, this is fucking, I can't, I've got to go and see. So I'd seen the same psychiatrist who I still see. He's kind of like a good friend of mine now, I guess he's about 70. But anyway, I thought I need a different tack here. And I went to this guy who basically focuses on exposure therapy, which sort of seems to work for a lot of the anxiety Conditions
0: for those who uh, don't understand what exposure therapy is. So essentially,
1: like it's pretty, like it is kind of funny. Like, so in my case, like, um, so like in the hand washing case, what you would do is you would go, you would you would wash your hands, and then you'd go. Let's say you do something like go and touch your toilet, right? And then you'd have to go ten seconds before washing your hand, and then do it again. Go twenty seconds a minute and see how how you go and it doesn't work for everyone like some people are so sick that you know like you read prop like there was one kid in in ghana i think who ate eight meters of his own mud hut he was because he had ocd and that was his thing and you know he obviously had to then it had to get disimpacted and stuff so some people you know i don't want to like the important thing about talking about medical stuff like this is i'm not a doctor and also the conditions can range obviously from quite mild to incredibly severe and it's not like exposure therapy is going to solve everyone's problem but that is the theory so with me um because there was a lot of sort of sort of religious blasphemy stuff um I would have to go I'd he the the doctor would write cards like fucked up shit on cards like you know like anti-religious shit and then I'd have to like drive on my way to work go past the church get out of the car stand in front of the church and repeat all the lines to, in front of the church. Which sounds... You know, if someone saw me, it'd be like, they'd want to fucking arrest me and then get back in the car and drive to work without doing any ritual... Like, any um, compulsions. Mm-hmm. Um, which was in... Like, sounds like... I mean, people would be listening to and go, yeah, okay, that's not that hard. But it's like, when you're in it, it's full on. Like, it's... it's It virtually feels impossible.
0: So, the religious aspects come up a few times. Yep. So, obviously, that was hugely t- tied into it in some way
1: yeah I mean like I'm not religious now mm. um, I mean I think I probably was possibly one of the most religious people in the world when I was a 12 year old because I was literally dealing with you know God's po- I'm like come on God I got, I got, you know what do you want me to do now what do I want to do with this what do I and it was a very childlike version of religion as well and I think it was just a symptom of the fact that you know we kind of went to church occasionally um, he died on Christmas Eve mum got into church she made me become the altar boys so I was in there hearing all the stuff about atonements and 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 it, you know if you repeat something enough like our brains are only so powerful you know they get overwhelmed and and so I just took it on like and um you know OCD is interesting like that even from a sociological perspective like back in the 80s a lot of people had OCD about AIDS so um and then when 9-11 happened a lot of people had it about terrorism so it, it seems to be able to sort of take on external um conditions as it's sort of but in the end it's sort of the same thing it's this threat this you feel this threat and that and you need to make your threat ameliorate your threat by doing weird well not weird but repetitive things um what was the question
0: okay so well i mean religion and what religion's involvement was and why there was had to be sort of a religious deprogramming element to it, I guess. Yeah, and
1: I had to sort of spend a lot of time reading myself out of religion. Like, I mean, I think, you know, I'm much more mellow about religion now, but, like, I mean, if Carrie was here, she'd be, like, fucking saying, shut up about religion because we used to argue because I used to fucking debate everyone and argue everyone. And really what I was doing was I was... So everyone thinks I'm, like, this hardcore atheist, but I'm actually not. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just afraid of it. I just don't want it to be true because if it's true, then I'm responsible. And... You know, I can do certain things that that means God will favour this person, or God will, you know. And it's like that; it's at that level. Of, it's like literally the centre in the sky, kind of thing. Yeah. Because that's what it was when I was nine. Um, so I am gen, you know, like I think I, you know, I certainly externally, like I've obviously got a lot of anger towards religion. I think there's lots to be religion's got a lot to answer for, just generally. But um, but yeah, the reality is what I'm really doing is like. I'm arguing with myself. I'm just trying to free myself from, if I, I I, I guess I kind of just thought if I can read myself out of this, if I can make it not true in my head, then I won't have to worry about this anymore. And that wasn't ineffective either.
0: So you mentioned that it, it's actually been reasonably okay in 2020, yeah. which is in, in some ways counterintuitive to what you just said about like, you know, events like 9-11 or these big sort of uncontrollable yeah, events right. being associated. Now um, you're only talking from your personal perspective. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but why do you think for you that's been the case? Well,
1: I think I didn't actually yeah. answer your question, which probably answers both. And mm-hmm. that is that on top of the, what I just described, I think the other thing is having kids kind of, makes all of the regrets, all of the thing, all the time wasting, all of the things you did wrong in your life. Okay. Like if it, if, cause part of the symptom is about this sliding doors. Like, what if I'd done this and not this? And it's like, well, all of this has led me to Ollie, Evie and Addy and Carrie. I mean, I'm doing all right. Like, and you know, would I give up all of that stuff if it meant that I didn't have those guys? And I don't think I would. So in some ways it kind of, takes all of the mistakes and all of the regrets and puts them in a, like, scrunch, scrunch in a ball and chuck it in a fire and it's gone. And um, so I think that's, I think having had more time with them and, and spent trying to spend a bit of time just going, fuck, how cool are they? Is just meant that, you know, I mean, it comes with its own. Like, I still, like, I'd be lying if I didn't, you know, like, wake up in the middle of the night going, shit, what if one of them drowns? What if one of them, does? you know, like, of course, that's what every parent has. But it's like, but yeah, I think a big thing big part of it has been that. And so 2020, I'm, you know, the COVID thing, I'm not sure, you know, I always feel so uncomfortable. And it's kind of part of the reason I did the podcast the way I did it, which is just, because people
0: may not know about it. didn't, didn't. So uh, you've jumped slightly ahead of my excellent sorry. interviewing technique, yeah, which is that you were, we literally got there so naturally mm. and it would have just seemed like when I said, well, funnily enough, you have done this podcast about 2020 <laughs> brain's trust. And I really would like you've, I was had so much craft going on there that you've really <laughs> fucked up sorry. about 30 seconds early by going, there's going to be people going, Oh, well, we should have thought that there was literally the next thing I was going to ask yeah, people.
1: I could see it in his eyes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but no, I, so this was the project, and I told you before we we were just uh, having a beer by the pool yep. um, before we started, and I was saying how much that I had enjoyed oh, this show. Great. It's yeah, a, it, so it's called it's called Brain Trust or the Brain's Trust. It's I can't remember Brains Trust. Brains Trust. Yeah, and
1: initially the idea was um, to just do a, a social document about twenty twenty, yeah. and as a one off, and I was going to do it regardless. And then um, I was fortunate that um, again another mutual friend of ours, Sam Kavanaugh um, was interested, and so we sort of made it into something that was repeatable, which is why it's called Brain Trust because we could then possibly talk mm-hmm. about parenting or what or whatever. And that yeah. you know, obviously that depends on the listeners. But mm.
0: but I did hear, yeah. As soon as I heard uh, Brain Trust Series One, I was like, okay, I see yes, <laughs> little little <laughs> franchise
1: format. Uh, I like this. That's right. We can't get away <laughs> from the commercial realities. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So the but the big reason that I did that was to try and... um kind of work 2020
0: out yeah so you interviewed a whole bunch of people this we should give people some more details i, I highly recommend it i've listened to all of it i thought it was you know really fantastic but in doing so you, you chose a whole bunch of people yep. you interviewed them about the year but then you've edited it into a way where sort of episodes have themes and you're hearing from all the different the, people yeah. on the different yeah. things so it's
1: not like yeah it's not one of them for mm. i don't speak to like dr chris brown for one episode in Annabelle. they're all interweaved and um carrie was kind enough to do the voice so he didn't have to listen to my whiny voice for the whole time but um she sort of narrated the, the news links i guess and um so yeah so i interviewed um seven people so the reason for interviewing these people is partly i knew them all um and i wanted to be able to talk to them in a not a I, I purposely didn't do it in a matesy way but they were people that i knew would feel like they were under any threat and they would just happily talk um so they're people that i'm close with and they're all obviously really good talkers. So it's Kitty Flanagan, um, Ronnie Chang, Adam Briggs, um, Dr. Chris Brown, Hamish Blake, Waleed Ali and, um, Annabelle Cratt. And, and so I tried to pick people like, whilst they're all of course from media and, and, uh, they're from different unique things like Chris Brown's obviously a vet and Ronnie Chang's really interesting because his mum lives in Singapore. He lives in the U S he was in Australia when, the, when COVID was happening. And, um, and the idea was really to try and not just go, "Oh, what were you doing when?" but to really try and talk about the big, like the, the psychology and the philosophy of their year, um, along sort of broad themes like whether it be climate or social media or obviously COVID, and try and get to self reflect get them to self-reflect and then hopefully you know the listener then gets to go okay that's interesting and and you know a lot of it was reframing for me like you know you know the way that they were so candid and generous I thought that um it to me it kind of made 2020 not a waste
0: so it's very interesting to hear other people's perspectives on this year because we were having a little chat about this before Mm. we started about how important are you? You think twenty twenty is so? What, what you know? I mean, it's very hard to tell if something's historic while we're in the middle of it. Mm. But how important, you know, sort of in our lifetimes, mm. do you think twenty twenty is going to be?
1: Well, that was that exact question was what made me was what prompted me to do the podcast. So historically, when big, as you just said, like World War Two and stuff, the way that humans have reacted. Sociologically, or, or as a community, has been really interesting, and they've tended to bind together after very, very serious events, like after World War II. We did certain things, like sign refugee treaties, and and it's almost like everyone collectively said, "Fuck, let's not do that shit again." Like that was pretty horrific, um, and I think you would hope that COVID, or twenty twenty and COVID nineteen, would would have a similar impact because it's so clear. Um, and I don't want to mimic your own stand-up back to you, but I think you must have, I think I'm pretty sure you said in one of your stand-ups about what sort of sets humans apart is their ability to collaborate. And and it's not that we're smarter. It's not that we're stronger. We just collaborate better. And we cl- collaborate intergenerationally as well. Like my, my kids wake up with the internet. Um, and, and so what I guess, if the optimistic part of me would sort of hope that COVID-19 would go, everyone would sort of go, okay, well, it doesn't fucking work being really rich but not having anyone to buy coffee off like and so you would hope that all that stuff you know sort of starts meeting in the middle and everyone has a little bit more you know empathy and and sort of less self-centered and selfish and obviously even if we get through COVID we've got this much much bigger problem hang on what
0: (laughs) (laughs) why haven't I read anything about this what is this more massive problem than COVID that's coming? <laughs> um,
1: so, yeah. So I guess.
0: Well, okay. So, okay. So you talk about the idea of collaboration, mm. cooperation, mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. We're all in this together. That was a cliche, right? Mm-hmm. We're all in this together. Mm-hmm and there was an element of we that we were at least in some ways Mm. all in this together and then there was obviously the counter argument is that while we might have all been experiencing the same things we were experiencing them in very different ways and Mm. people have the capacity and resources to experience it in very different ways Mm. so what's your gut feel after talking to everybody like that you did for your show Mm. about is it is the experience that we just had do you have hope that it prepares us better for the challenges that we have coming? Or are you worried that we aren't going to learn the lessons that we need to learn from what we've just gone through?
1: I think I'm probably worried.
0: Yeah. I didn't think that pause was while you gathered all your optimism.
1: (laughs) Give Give me some fucking optimism here. I think I'm worried. I think, look, you see flashes of I mean, another inspiration for doing this podcast was this book, Humankind. And the thesis of that book is that human nature is nowhere near as bad as we all make it out to be. And we've started writing these narratives. I mean, the best illustration of that, he starts the book by sort of saying that the, the Nazis were bombing London and, and Hitler wanted to, to bomb them, effectively bomb the soul out of them and you know, break them and not just kill them, but actually break their spirit. And they all got up open their bakeries, open their coffee shops and their pubs and, you know, kept their sense of humor. And if anything, that's what made them persevere. Um, and the other example he uses is the real life Lord of the Flies, like that book, the Lord of the Flies, where they all turn on each other and kill, do they kill the, the poor fat kid. What happens in, I forget. What? Well,
0: I, I don't remember either, but that it, feels like, that
1: feels like something would happen. Yeah. Anyway, something. But in reality that there was a story, a real life story where these kids got stuck on an atoll and in the Pacific and, when they they went and found them, they were all actually very cooperative and had survived for a very long time. And mm-hmm. so, I guess you yeah, I mean like you would well, that's the, the
0: the Stanford prison experiment, the thing that was you know remember the the the, the famous Stanford prison experiment, Remind. which is the one where they basically gave got a whole bunch of volunteers they made a whole bunch of them guards and then they made a whole bunch of them prisoners and the idea being that the guards eventually you know really treated the prisoners really incredibly badly and the theory that came out of it was that people would accept these roles that they had been given by society but it turned out that a lot of the research was discredited and when they tried to redo the experiment what actually happened was that the volunteers weren't happy to be guards. They were like, I don't want to be a guard. I don't want to like treat these other people yeah, right. really badly. So th- this idea we had that people naturally would tear each other apart when given the opportunity and given power was actually very false to how people genuinely reacted in that moment, which was people going, I don't want to do this.
1: Yeah. So I guess, so So There's obviously, yeah, I mean, and yet this which is obviously making it far too basic because it's not just our, Nature that is going to decide how this works. Mm-hmm. Like, we've got pretty intricate systems of government that are interrelated on a global scale. Um, and, you know, the evidence isn't great. Like, you know, Brazil keeps fucking burning rainforests and they give the poor people 100 real a month so they keep getting voted back in. But in reality, like, they're torching the globe, um, along with America and China and... Um, these big countries, you know, but we're fine in Australia. No, right? We're killing it. Our but, uh,
0: climate record is impeccable here.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I mean, I think just a week ago mm. he got shut out of, um, I forget the name of the conference they had, but there was like seventy people and they didn't even let him go because mm. he's, busy he eating coal? <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, no, we're shit house. Um But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I. My guess is you're, you're pessimistic about it based on our poolside chat.
0: Yeah, well, I'm pessimistic about... My constant state of being, I think, is a mixture of genuine pessimism and then trying to switch that to optimism because I see things as they are or at least like I, as I perceive that they
1: But you're they acknowledging are. that's pessimistic?
0: But then I'm like, well, I think it's realistic when I acknowledge it, but... That does mean no good. It does mean no good that if I think that. You know, the, the, the structures and governments and infrastructure and neoliberalism and all these things are in place to a point where it doesn't matter if people are inherently good or bad yeah. and won't become, you know, guards and beat prisoners in an experiment. It doesn't fucking matter because there are so many systems already in place that regardless of whether people are nice or not, these systems are impossible to dismantle other than complete and utter revolution. Okay, all right. So that's a pretty negative way of looking at it. Yeah. We're not going to learn anything from this. We're going to continue to have a series of increasingly difficult things to go through like this. And what we've learned from this is that the rich will get richer and the poor will fucking get fucked at every possible scenario. And eventually, you know, it leads to the destruction of possibly the only sentient life that's ever fucking existed in the universe as far as we know. The only time that we've been human beings and that people will ever be human beings, that we are hurtling towards the fucking end game on that scenario versus the idea that we'll be around in 200 or 500 or a thousand years. Okay, so that probably sounds pretty pessimistic.
1: I mean, it's funny because like, I don't, yeah, I mean, dip, yeah. I mean, I want to get go down a rabbit hole there, but no,
0: we can go down a rabbit hole. Do you have a hard out? Do you need to go No, not at all. I, just, I would guess
1: I would just say that I don't. I don't necessarily think the destruction of the human species is is inherently a pessimistic view. I mean, I think it's inevitable at some point over a long enough time scale it's a never over long enough yeah
0: yeah yeah we might be but it feels like we're rapidly accelerating yeah, towards yeah, it yeah. in a way that we could just early. pump the brakes a little guys
1: yeah, I, yeah absolutely um,
0: <laughs> no one no one needs to get home early <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is it yeah
1: yeah so but i just think it's interesting because i think you've like i'm interested in how you framed it then because you're like your inherent view is that you're pessimistic but then you made a shuffle to go, hold on, but the way I perceive it is realistic. And then you're then got another shift, do you, mentally where you try and turn it into a positive?
0: Yes. So that's, yeah. So that's then when you look for what, that if this is the scenario as it's playing out, we have two choices. We can accept it or we can, you know, rally against it, right? We can create something positive, that we can focus on those things that are great about us and try to perhaps fight a fight that we will never win. But I think that it's important to fight regardless. I mean, even just reminding people that this is it, you know, this is the gut. If you're not religious, if you don't believe that, you know, we've been put here by God or that we're in the middle of a simulation or those sort of things. If you do believe that we are random accident in the corner of the universe and the likelihood that there is anyone else like us anywhere in the universe is remote. And that, like you said, that this will only be a tiny blip in the universe. That at some stage humanity will be over, and then it will be gone forever. It makes at least, it all the more special. Fucking hell! Mm. Like, then we need to make whatever this is, whatever the meaning of this is, we need to make this better than it is. That I guess that's what that's where I go from pessimism to at least trying to be optimistic about it. It's funny because.
1: I mean, I'm sure everyone has this experience and and like the problem with these conversations is because they're politically charged. As soon as you have them, people are going to be saying, oh, this guy's just left or this guy's just right. It's
0: okay. There's no right-wing people listening to this podcast. (laughs) 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 We've already eliminated them by a process of attrition over the last seven years. So you're in a very, very safe space.
1: (laughs) I just, yeah. It's it's what you do with that stuff. Like, I I mean, I am... had a trip away with my mates, you know, and virtue of my dad's own good luck and intelligence stuff. He was a doctor, so I was lucky enough to go to, you know, a private school. So mm-hmm. there's like ten private school fucking dickheads on a on a trip, and I ended up in this massive argument with this, this mate of mine that I've been friends with for thirty years um, about climate change and just like just like the level of indifference to the problem at hand was just fucking killing me at 2am in the morning after too many drinks and you know it was fine we had a massive blow up at him and then in the morning of course we've been friends for so long it didn't matter but it was like I remember just then after feeling oh god what the fuck like is the point like how do you actually like I can't even he's like one of my best mates and I can't influence him like it just I guess what I'm pessimistic about is like I'm pessimistic about your optimism. Like, how do you actually do anything? Like, how do you make... Like, people adjust? Like, by virtue of my job, I have to read lots of different things. Whereas some of my mates are clearly only reading Murdoch papers, right? And if you read enough of it, it's kind of what I was saying before about OCD. Like, you don't have a choice but to have that worldview, Okay, this is really
0: interesting and I know we're going to talk for ages more so I'm going to have a pause and go to the toilet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're back. We had a break. We had a toilet break. We broke, yeah. Um, I uh, would have done this regardless but I'll just give you a little insight into my world is that we use the sort of the downstairs toilet the toilet that's closest to my office where we record this and Uh, yesterday that toilet has been cleaned and including putting some new soap in there and (laughs) I I hadn't unwrapped the new soap and I said like in my head of course I would have unwrapped the soap to wash my hands regardless I need to point that out but there was another part of me that was like you've really got to fucking make sure this soap is there for Chris. (laughs) You've really got to make sure that he can walk into a toilet and isn't going to have a fucking nervous breakdown because there's no soap there to wash his hands effectively.
1: Uh, Mid-pandemic.
0: Um, all right. So uh, we now have the dogs in here as well, which means at some stage they'll probably just fight and then sit on your lap. They're going to show off for a little bit first. Um, so I asked people on this show if they have a personal life philosophy. Do you have a personal life philosophy? A guiding um, principle? It's not compulsory, by the no, way. No, i just a, like I to mean, ask I, the question.
1: I, yeah, I've got a couple, um, I think. Um, I think, the, I, I mean, they're borrowed. I mean, I think it might have been... It's probably Ricky has probably borrowed it from someone else, but from a work perspective, I like the idea of when you walk into a room, just assume no one else knows what they're doing either. Um, that's been useful for me because, especially, um, especially when I was younger, but you, you know, you go into rooms and you're pitching shows or doing whatever you're doing, and you know, and everyone's in suits and looks like they're, you know, about to make or break your life, and the reality is, is they're just the Ramona
0: you've got to keep your head yeah, away from the done. microphone because then people can't this one? hear to this one? mine is mine is and sit, um, yeah, that's it sit down
1: good guy and I like the other one the other one I like is um, that if you think you can or you think you can't you're right so it's, it's you know it's interesting given how much I hate wishful thinking and how much as you can imagine based on what we talked about with OCD about how much I despise my own th- how much I've despised my own thoughts and um how I think that um, thoughts are involuntary and but I think once you've had them, if you can frame them, if you believe that you can do something you can, if you believe you can't then you can't it will it will inevitably self um, be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I so I think you're always better side on the idea that you can do something rather than you can't.
0: So I, like I', I challenge you with a caveat yeah because going. i do believe that if you don't believe you can do it then you probably can't do it yeah. i think that side of it is true mostly true the yeah. idea that if you do believe in something that you can do it oh, comes no, I with mean, some
1: caveats yes, right correct that like, doesn't mean that i can become the mvp of the nba is that what you mean
0: well I mean but yes, but you could probably lower your expectations even on that as your example, which is the that- <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> As a, as a five foot eleven white guy about to turn forty,
0: let's let's just take that one as a we've all agreed that that is the case. <laughs> yeah,
1: I was incredibly arrogant,
0: wasn't it? <laughs> if I just believe it, at the moment I just don't believe that I can do it. But it's funny, I have a little thing that I do often to get to sleep, and uh, people have heard about this before. And I guess it's just some version of a meditation, but mine comes in the form of a sporting thing and i think you'll enjoy this being a person who love you sport. know loves sport is that it's called six great innings to the australian test team right and so i have to invent a scenario in my head where i go from a being a 46 year old man who hasn't played cricket in 26 years to in six innings being in the australian test cricket
1: team i love this game
0: and so and somewhere in that i will fall asleep normally right but i have to invent every aspect of that scenario you know like i do the same thing okay so tell me a little bit about that yourself then
1: so i played cricket um my well my whole life i mean i i was obsessed with basketball growing up which yeah so
0: obviously and um, i'm sorry if this is an impolite question but that's fine um your experience of your childhood losing your brother did not mean that you did not want to play No, if cricket. anything,
1: I, yeah, I, 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 cricket has become a homage to him. And I mean, I don't think I could love that sport much anymore. Um, fortunately, now my 13-year-old loves it, so I get to go watch him play. Um, but yeah, I still played until I was 34. Um, when I, I mean, I was, I was distracted by basketball until I was about 20. And then I started playing cricket more as an older person, even though I played, you know, even I wasn't that good, but I got, I got better in adult life. And, um, but yeah, and I so I used to play for like you know um, old you know old blokes like you know um, old school like was, um, the school the school I went to the you know the alumni that school we had a team and um, I used to play that exact game where I'd be like okay how many innings. From here from this competition this half social half competitive competition <laughs> where we drink beers at the end of the game how many tons do i have to make in a row before i'm in the australian team and i think it's 20. see here's
0: the thing i cheat it and i have done actually by the way an nba version of this so <laughs> just for the sake of it but i cheat it because i my starting position is always a celebrity game where I star. So like the NBA or like the NBL or like the cricket yeah. or whatever yeah. having some exhibition match. Yeah. And match like when Fatty Vaughton took that incredible yeah. catch. <laughs> play.
1: So you're playing in like a like it's like a pro am.
0: Yeah, like a bunch of like you know Brian Lara's yeah. there and Ricky Ponting's there but also it's you know me and Sonia Kruger. <laughs>
1: both opening both opening yeah (laughs) and so kruger makes a duck and anderson makes a ton
0: yeah i make like a ton batting at the other end from adam gilchrist or something you know (laughs) it's just like man we've got to get this guy in front of
1: in front of the next yeah so i but i reckon it's more than six even from, even, from your, even from your celebrity game.
0: You need an opportunity. Here's what I would say. If you're going to do it from grade cricket, here's how you do it. You make a super amount of runs or take a super amount of wickets in your game that you've filled in. So your mate plays in the district fifths mm-hmm. and you come down to the district fifths and you're there just to hang out with your mate. But um, he's like, hey, we're actually one short. Um, you know, would you like to come and play, right? So you go and play and you take seven for two. Right, like bowling off spinners. That's what I. That's normally what I'm doing. I'm bowling off spinners. You <laughs> like that? No one has ever seen before in the world. Playable off spinners. Right angles. <laughs> seven for two. So I've taken like seven for two in the district fifths. I think by the next week you could be playing in the district sec- seconds. Like, is that not an impossible jump? If you take seven for two, is there not a chance that they just go?
1: Well like, I mean the twos I mean the twos you 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 know you got some pretty good players in the twos so you you could have to knock out a pretty good The way I think let's start with the fifths I reckon yeah. it's let's do it with let's do it with let's imagine you make 100 on the knocker. Okay fifths you make 100 you go to the thirds Yeah possibly you might have to play one game in the fourths but no. you can possibly...
0: No I reckon you make a 100 like an, a chanceless 100 yeah. in the fifths
1: Yeah let's assume it's chanceless
0: <laughs> For the, for the sake of this hypothetical scenario, like, I hope you haven't been dropped seven times. I will make a hundred, but it looks real them.
1: shaky. So you get to the third. I think yeah. you probably need to make two
0: hundreds in two games. Yeah,
1: possibly one, but yeah. possibly two. So you, yeah. then you've. So let's let's just call it two turns. You're in yeah. the second. Definitely need to make two in the second to get to the first. no uh-huh. So if you're up to four, you're in the first. I reckon you need to make before you're playing. Second 11 for Victoria or New South Wales or wherever you're from. I reckon that's three. So you're up to seven. Then it's probably another two to get into the ones. So you're at 10 nearly. Yeah.
0: See, this is your problem. You're thinking about this in a very... And we did talk about this before at the start of the show. So it's actually very thematic, And it's the difference between the the behind-the-scenes producer and... What we term the talent, the talent. <laughs> because the teller believed there is a shorter way to it, yeah. which is seven first, for two. Like, firstly, seven for two. <laughs> but no, I, I'm not playing fucking thirds if I've made a hundred in the fifths i <laughs> I'm playing seconds, and then yes, I under I, I understand what you're saying that perhaps I have to play two weeks in the seconds and make a hundred. What I'm going to say in that scenario is I bat and I bowl. So I've made a hundred, <laughs> and I've taken like okay I'll lot. Three for seven. There you go. They're better figures. I've taken three for seven. You can't tell me if I make 100 in the seconds and take three for seven, that I can't play in the first of the next week.
1: No wonder this puts you to sleep. Right?
0: I can play in the first of the next week. I understand what you're saying about the idea of perhaps I have to play, you know, two games in the first to get to the next level. All right. Here's what I'm going to say is I make 200 in one innings in the first and I don't get picked for the state team. But there's a visiting international team and they're playing like one of those like, you know, games that it was like a Prime Minister's 11 style oh, yeah. game. And they always pick somebody who's, you know, a, so you pick this guy who's like only played three innings, hasn't been out. He's made 500 runs. He's played in the fifth, the second, the first, and he's in the state squad. Mm-hmm. Make runs in that against the visiting, you know, I didn't, I mean, didn't realise we,
1: we could move the scheduler <laughs>
0: I'm just saying my schedule exists at a time when it's convenient to this happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is all a very good meditation, yeah. though.
0: But yeah, just playing out those scenarios, however ridiculous they are, it does tend to to get me to sleep. Why did we start talking about cricket? What was the... I think you were saying... Oh, you can't be necessarily... You can't just imagine yourself to be no, the best I think I subject. think
1: I, I possibly... Threw us down a garden path because yep. I don't, I, I, don't believe that just thinking things makes it true. In fact, interestingly, when I parent our thirteen year old, he, he often says to me, "I want to be a cricketer," um, and he's, he, he plays cricket. He, he made his first fifty two weeks ago, and but he doesn't practice that much, <laughs> and <laughs> and he keeps saying, "I want to be." He got, and when you know someone asks him, "What are you going to do when you're older, Ollie?" His first answer is, "I want to be a cricketer." Um, and he, and he says, it's a joke now. He goes, oh, but Chris doesn't believe in me. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I believe in you. I believe in dreams and following your dreams. But you have to work on your dreams, mate. You can't just dream them. Like, and so so when I say that, all, all, what I'm saying about that, yeah. that mantra is that if you don't think you can do it, you're not going to be able to do it. Yeah, You still have to fucking do it. I mean, in fact, the doing it is the hard bit. Yeah.
0: There's a, another old footy you know, cricket slogan that you know, speaks to this but I do love which is if it is to be it's up to me right yeah yeah the idea that the only person who can be responsible for you achieving that thing that you want to achieve is yourself
1: but I think and I think this will be interest you interestingly and this is possibly contradictory is that I do think we put way too much stock generally in the idea that we can be self-made mm-hmm. I think I don't believe in free will like I don't believe that we are in control of our own thoughts i don't think that we don't choose our families we don't choose our genes we don't choose the the, the level you know the level of privilege we're born into right. it's just a fucking fluke and so if you believe that which i think it's pretty hard to dispute to be honest um then you can't put too much stock into the idea that that you're the the maker of your destiny
0: yeah they're two interesting things in it because i do believe that you if it is to be it's up to me is right in that as you're saying you can't um if you don't think that you can do it you definitely can't do it mm. but then then the next bit of it is the idea that nobody has done it by themselves that's right absolutely nobody has done it by themselves you can't name an example of anyone who's ever done anything who has done it by themselves because even if i was like well i wrote all my stand up myself yeah but did you build the venue that you performed it in did you turn on the lights did you know how to operate the microphone did you print up the posters did you put together the ticketing system did you make sure that there were adequate roads and parks and meals and whatever else that meant that people would feel like going out for an and going and seeing a show none of those things I am responsible for so like I could not do anything even if I said that it was all me and of course that even takes out the fact that I had parents who supported me enough when I changed careers to pursue what I wanted to do what that I was cha- born from? journalism what were you going to be a uh, political journalist really yeah so I studied political journalism at university and why did you not do that I did do it for a little while. I worked in the Canberra Press Gallery concurrent to while I was studying. So um, I, I did the first year of my university degree. was interested in politics and, you know, journalism seemed like... The way to go. The way to go. Um, and so, so I went to Canberra because I thought, you know, if you're going to be a political journalist, That's you might as funny. well go and. And I was right in that regard because my university had a thing that at the end of first year university... I can't remember my retelling of this, and I apologise if this is not true. I believe it was either the person who did best first year or maybe a few people who'd done best first year got
1: interviews. I well, can't. Or someone who took seven for two got a.
0: Yeah, exactly. I can't actually remember how it is that I got this job, but I believe I got this job from doing well first year at university. And then there was a program in the press gallery where different media organisations would each year. So it'd be the equivalent of say, if we said once a year, um, we're gonna get somebody from like a, a writing course or a producer's course or a journalism course or whatever, and the weekly will do it one year, and then oh, yeah. the next year, Hard Quiz will do it. Yeah. And then the next year, Gruen will do it. And the next year, Matt as Hell will do it. So neither, none of the organisations are doing it every year. It is like a roster that they're on. So, the year before it was the Sydney Morning Herald, and the year that I did it was the Financial Review. So that's how I found myself working in the Canberra Press Gallery of the Financial Review for two years. Two years. Why did you give it up? Wasn't for me. I had a conversation with. A guy called Tom Burton. People have heard me talk about this before, but I always like to give him a shout out because he was the person. He was the churo, the the chief of the bureau there uh, in Canberra. So basically, he's the one who had been responsible for creating this position and then encouraging me and teaching me and doing all these things in this position, right? And I sat down with him and it was the end of my degree and I'd graduated first in my course at uni and, you know, obviously had all this practical experience of writing for the newspaper and working in the Canberra Bureau. So So you loved it? I I was good at it. Right. So I sat down with him and that was, I was having a real crisis, you know, maybe like what they, you know, kind of talk about now as being like a quarter life crisis. Mm. But I was having a crisis definitely, which was, I'm really good at this clearly, you know, like I'm getting great results. I've got this job, I've got all these job, you know, opportunities of places I could go. And I was not diagnosed at the time. This is only me retrospectively diagnosing what I was going through, but I was probably pretty fucking depressed Mm -hmm. because I could not work out what this massive gap was between the level of success I was having and the level of emptiness that I felt inside. I didn't enjoy it. I hated it. And I hated myself. And I was scared of going. Every day I would get up and not want to go. I was terrified. Did comedy make the difference? By everything. What's so fucking funny, because I quit. I had this mate, Adam Harvey. And um, Adam Harvey's like a really well-respected, you know, international correspondent for the ABC. Like, you know, a brilliant journalist, son of Peter Harvey, who everyone would know. Mm. Um, the famous Peter Harvey Canberra. And... Uh, incredible guy adam and he was the only person i told i said i'm not going to do journalism i'm going to get moved to melbourne and be a stand-up comedian and i remember him just going i don't think that's a good idea (laughs) and and i got that because there had been nothing about the person he knew the person that he had hung out with for the last three years that it would make sense that i was going to go off and be a stand-up
1: comedian so did it make the difference though
0: I mean, I guess it did. I mean, I mean, just out of if you look back at my life, I've been a stand-up comedian for a quarter of a century now. Like, you no, know. No,
1: that worked. But you said you equated earlier. You were saying I was doing this thing and I hated it, and I was I was clinically depressed, possibly.
0: I mean, I guess in a, like, in a, funnily enough, probably initially, you know, and I'm, when I say initially, for the first ten or so years i would say absolutely yes right because you're so enthralled by what this new thing and what you do and then i guess the more you do something the longer you do it the more you pick it apart the more you examine the role that it has in your life the more tendency there is to you know see its flaws and i think 2020 you know is one of those years that really has you know i was forced to stop doing it mm. and i suddenly realized all the things in my life that are better when i don't do it you know in regards to my health and my mental health and
1: when you don't do stand up when better. i don't
0: do stand up but that is better because stand up is something that i put myself through
1: so what do you I, does not, that
0: make sense like yeah, i like mean as in you, you yeah. said
1: something to go full circle back to that day at gruen you said something that made me from a person who i who i clearly didn't know and my if if you if if we were on my podcast now my question would be to you are you proving something to yourself by doing stand-up?
0: I mean, yeah, I probably, I would say. I don't exactly know what that is. It's probably at different times in my life I've been proving different things to myself, would be the actual real answer. Um, you know. Have you proved it? No. No. <laughs> 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 that's the easy one to answer. Absolutely. Whatever one. it is, I have Whatever proved. it is, I definitely have not proved it. <laughs> I've identified more areas where I have to prove things to myself and I've proved none of them to myself. And I do that so to my That's a bad proof strategy. And I do that to myself on purpose. And so that's what this year suddenly made when it's taken away and you realize that there are a whole bunch of your things in your life that are actually better from you not doing it like the torture right now like we're having such a relaxed podcast like we talked for a bunch beforehand we've had a break in between Like it's been great. I've really, I'm loving it. It's, it's really fun. You know, just this whole day, the podcast, but just the day has Mm. been really lovely. You know, normally at this point of the year, the idea of sitting down with somebody for this long and in this relaxed way would feel like torture to me because what I really should be doing is writing my stand-up show for the comedy festival and anything that happens in the three months beforehand that. Just feels to me like I'm robbing the energy that I should be putting to get the show right. What's
1: torturous about it? Is it the, Is it that is it that it won't be that it won't live up to your expectation, or that it's actually you? Because I assume the writing the jokes is something you enjoy. No, no, that's torturous.
0: <laughs> I don't think it is something that I enjoy. Interesting. I don't think that I've always been one of those people as a writer who you know. There's some people who say I love writing. I've never loved writing. But you do... do you like, I you like hate writing. I, yeah, it's like when it's going well. But how much of the... How much of it do I... I, I get, okay, so let's take this to professional sport a little bit again. You know how there are some people who... You know, maybe say you're the best player in the first. And you're, you just have fun. Appreciate that. Right? You're the best player in the first, right? Mm. And you have every saturday night you have drinks with the boys mm. and you have work a job during the week mm. and your life's fucking great but say you're actually better than the guy in the first suddenly you're playing for australia but you're not the best player in the australian team mm. so every time you walk out there to bat every time you walk out in the field you feel like you're auditioning for the right to be there in the first place right so you could do it for your entire career and never feel like you fit in never feel like you've just gone i am comfortable here always feeling like you have something That's how you feel that's how i feel as a
1: but even though objectively you obviously belong and in fact if anything people would be looking at you going how do i get to that level i I, I mean i have the same i can
0: intellectually understand what you're saying Absolutely, because I'm not a fucking idiot. I can look at... <laughs> do you mean I can look at pe- other people's careers that I consider to be very successful and I consider them to be incredibly deserving of being in the room and think, yeah, what you've done also matches up with what they have done. I can intellectually understand that. But if I'm being truthful mm. in a emotional way, mm. I do not understand that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... I mean, I wonder whether or not everybody has imposter syndrome to a certain degree. I mean, I, I mean I'm waiting for someone to, to just tap me on the shoulder and go, mate, you really don't know what the fuck you're doing. Um, you know, and, and i probably intellectually know that I am good at it and I can do yeah. it. and But, you know, and there's probably some benefits of having that, for that, for that feeling of not belonging because you constantly keep scrapping then. Like you constantly keep trying to belong and you constantly keep trying to prove someone wrong or prove yourself wrong or whatever and that keeps you keeps you moving more than anything but it's um I mean it's, I think it, you know I mean I, I mean I find that really interesting that that even I mean you must have told you know a million jokes I would have thought that the telling of them at, at minimum is a dopamine hit sometimes but It's funny, like this year,
0: having done Gruen without an audience for 10 Mm. episodes, I said to somebody at the end of it, it felt like we taped 10 dress rehearsals. Yeah. It never felt like the whole reason we do the thing is to do the show in front of the people, even though technically the reason we do it is to make a television show. That's actually what we're doing. But because we weren't doing the show in front of people, it almost felt like we still didn't do the show.
1: So, I mean, this sounds like a, this is a bit of a basic question, but. Why don't you stop?
0: I have thought about that so many times this year. That's the actual truthful answer. Is like, should I be doing something else? Is there something else that I could do with my life? And is there there another way that I could live my life that would be happier and healthier? I don't think there is. Firstly, I just don't have any capacity to earn a living. (laughs) Like in a it's real practical <laughs> sense, I have done this long enough that I have no other employable skills. Like, well, uh, none that I would find that I would Enriching. have as natural an aptitude to yeah. as I clearly have to this because yeah. I've made a career in this for a quarter yeah, of a century. So this one works, yeah. right? So there is that. The other one is that I think, in a general sense, in a life sense, the greater meaning of what I love about what I do is bigger than a momentary pleasure aspect of it, right? You've got to think of it on a metal level. Am I proud of what I do and the work that I do and what I've created and the opportunity I've created for other people and all these sort of things? Does that give me a sense of satisfaction of some kind? It does. It gives me like a peace and a satisfaction of some kind is there a way that I could have that and also be getting that love of being in it, you know, like of doing it, of, you know, receiving it back from the audience of, you know, giving it to them. I think there, there, there is, but I
1: don't, I don't know if I've unlocked exactly what
0: that but perfect think, storm is. But I maybe the bigger is.
1: question is like, how can you do it in a way that's not deleterious, to your mental or physical well being. Yeah, I think if, You yeah, know stories we tell now.
0: ourselves, right? You've been telling yourself this story all your fucking life that you've had to unpick. I think that there there was definitely an aspect for me about that if you wanted to be good at it, it had to have some aspect of suffering. That you had to mm. sacrifice a little bit of your life to it. That's that's that extra step that you're willing to go. Mm. That like if it was easy everybody would do it right Mm. like the reason that you're here is that you've been willing to sacrifice more of your life your health your Mm. whatever to serving this ideal and then this year i've been challenged by the idea of well maybe that's only a story you're telling yourself maybe that is absolutely not fucking true at all and there is a way that you could do this in a way that is much more healthy but the flip side of that is that I think that for years I've been fucking hell, this has become way more about me than I would have liked. But I, but now that we've started, I'll finish because, you know, I may as well. Um, which is I don't think I'm satisfied to go back to just a natural progression of where I was anyway. I think that the stop has made me partly think about I never want to do this again. But that has really been combined with no, that's not right. You don't want to do what you have been doing again. But what you've got to work out is how how do you get this thing to satisfy you in the way that you really want it to satisfy? So
1: I reckon this is actually quite important because I know you're saying that you wish we weren't talking about you, but I think I like visibly that's an emotional thing to talk about for you. And I think from my, not from just doing the podcast, but from everybody I've talked to this year has had a very similar impact on them. Um, And I don't think I fully appreciate what you're saying because are you saying that before this made you stop, well, sorry, so now that you've had to stop and look back at the progression or the 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 progression of your life, you've realized that, that wasn't necessarily the right path for me to be on? Is that what you're saying?
0: I certainly don't think it's the right path to continue to be on. And I think that perhaps if I'd stopped a while ago, there would have been things that I would have done very differently. That, you know, sometimes things have a internal momentum, right? You just keep doing them because you keep doing them. So you regret? There's some things I regret. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so then what do you do with that? What do you do with your regrets? Do you become consumed by your regrets? So this is where we get back to what I was saying before about my pessimism versus my optimism, right? Because I can have all that thought that's me thinking about climate change and you know COVID and you know structural inequality and you know racism and sexism and all these fucking things that you know that's that right Mm. but then there's another part of my brain that goes all right well now what are you going to do what are you going to do about that what do you what do you have the capacity to actually do in regard to how my life works in relationship to my work, mm. how, what sort of work that I really am passionate about doing. What is it that I really want to say? What is it that would, you know, be worth the cost that you're paying for it? Cause maybe you still have to pay some of the costs, but what will you feel like is actually worth it mm. for the costs? Mm. I think there's a real reprioritization. Have you had a reprioritization?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I mean the first thing i would say is what i've discovered is is it feels to me like everybody has like everybody and 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 so there's a few things to wrap up here i think because there's like this the word suffering i think is important and, and i in the podcast i tried to talk to Waleed about suffering from a sort of almost like a from a effectively a religious angle um because suffering is obviously very built into religiosity but also suffering is just a intrinsic part of of life and you know here you and i are talking here and in relative ter- terms, our suffering—you know—it's um, not South Sudan, but suffering. I think, and what everyone should acknowledge, you know, and I think we too readily these days go, oh, "It's a first world problem." That's a third world problem. We're just like portioning out like the, the level of suffering people, but people feel suffering at intensities that that are unique to them, and and can be about you know irrational things, rational things, no food, you know. Mental conditions, all sorts of stuff, and I, so I think that for me, the re the re what I th- it feels to me like the re everyone is tr- is going through is is how much of the time do they spend in their head suffering, and it you know whether it's the 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 conversation you have with yourself that is seemingly ongoing causes such an immense amount of pain on a daily basis you know whether it's like where the fuck are my car keys to you know waking up in the night dreading about your kids and and you know what am I gonna do with my career why didn't I do this why didn't I fucking you know why didn't I bowl better in year eight like whatever whatever. (laughs) like it it, it's such a we are so self-flagellating all the time and we live in this illusion that we're in control of ourselves and we're in control of our circumstances. And, and if anything, COVID, I think knocked us off the perch a little bit in a way that we probably haven't been knocked off since world war two, possibly as a, as a, as a people. Um, And so I think that, um, yeah, I think the, I mean, I've lost sort of, I feel like the reprioritization for me is how do I spend less time talking to myself in a way that is abusive and punitive and spend more time. It's kind of why I like, I've enjoyed doing this. It's why I like doing the podcast. Cause it's like, hold on. What, tell me about your shit. Like, like I spend so much time worrying about my own shit and it's kind of like, I mean, it's, in some ways it's part fucking selfish and, and, you know, almost, um, it's solipsistic. It's, you know, in some ways it's almost like, it's almost fucking like an egotistical to, 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 be in your head that much. And, and you know, and so we, we can't help it, like can't help do it because we're kind of built like that, but yeah, I would like to spend more time looking out. Like I'm not going to go to smell the roses, like, I'm not gonna... <laughs> but I think for me that that's been my reprioritization. I mean, that all sounds pretty fluffy, but...
0: No, no, I get that. I mean, we had uh, some massive storms here at my house today, and um, we had some massive storms on uh, Halloween and uh, cricket ball size hailstones, you know, ripped through, you know, the roof of the house and all sorts of things. But the garden in particular looked like someone had gone through it with a machete. And I have probably spent more time in the garden in the last two months than I have in the last 20 years, having to just... Like you would have seen the Bernie Man style pile of yeah, things I that I pulled garden, out of were, my mm. garden. And there's been about 10 of those. It was all
1: very Breaking Bad when I arrived. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking the <around> on here? <laughs>
0: and, but what that has also meant was just by necessity, I've literally had to see how things got broken and then how that they grow back. Right? That's what I've been experiencing in the garden for the last two months. Getting in cycle even with the idea of, hey, it hasn't rained for ages. It's raining too much at the moment, but that'll actually be good. I can even see, walk out there and go, oh my God, that didn't flower last week or that thing's grown back a lot, right? That I feel like is, feels like looking outwards. Mm.
1: You know, Absolutely. 100%. Right?
0: Mm. Just seeing the world a bit more.
1: Mate, do you know the number of people that have told me they've started... about? you might have already been a gardener, but... I was not. People are gardening a lot.
0: I've been forced into gardening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I need to get into gardening.
0: Well, I mean, there is some connection between, I think, you know... I think as we see how ravaging nature can be... Like, I think there, maybe people are, you know, trying to notice the connection between human beings and nature a little bit more.
1: That's right. There was these, like, I think there's all walks. I don't know if you've heard about all walks, but they did a study where, like, people who literally just walk in nature and observe nature and just talk about it, see it, acknowledge it. They reported, like, it was off the back of that um, documentary, My Octopus Teacher, where that dude, you know, Mm. fell in love with the octopus and went and visited him or her every day. Um And they yeah and and I think there was like something like I don't don't know how they measure these things but like a 60 or 70 percent uptick in people's happiness just from 15 minutes of walking around nature and going there's a tree there's a bird there's a you know and we should probably do more of it given that you know koala is about to disappear and
0: okay so what do you think about you know human's inherent relationship with because there has been a a sense of conquering nature up until now Obviously, you know, the impacts of climate change are being felt already but are only gonna escalate as the years go by and as like a you know, father to the next generation, yeah. what do you when you look at the world, you know, take COVID out of it, when yeah. you look at the world more generally, how do you feel about where yeah, we're Yeah,
1: I at? mean I have definite panics like states of panic about the white like Adelaide who's two uh, youngest the world that she will have to endure when she's fifty, if we keep going at this, at this level, um, it just seems so unfair, you know, that we're leaving them with this problem, and even from just a hospital, you know, hosp- um, how hospitable the joint is, like, um, let alone having to, you know, clean up every year after bushfires and storms, and you know, around the rest of the world, earthquakes and tornadoes and all these sort of stuff, which you know, some, obviously not all of it's climate change, but it's not helping. And it's just clear that the world's too hot and getting hotter. Um, You know, and one of the questions I asked to everyone in the podcast, which is something I can't really answer myself, was that you know, would you bring a kid into the world now? Obviously, we did two years ago, but um, and I think you know, it's a legitimate question. Two two of the people that I I asked that in the podcast said no, they wouldn't.
0: So. So, if you don't say I wouldn't, then, I mean, because it, it'd be the argument, as we've, like, touched on already a little bit, is that some people would say, Winnie, stop scratching. Um,
1: that wasn't me beating off. That was dog.
0: <laughs> I know. Before, when you were, like, giving quite an emotional answer, Ramona was, like, <laughs> huffing and puffing into the microphone. And I was like, no, it's going to sound like I'm <laughs> really excited by this story in a way that will not be appropriate. <laughs> um, so, uh the idea that in some ways we are still living... These are the best of ever times. Like, you know, the, the in the history of humanity, if you draw it as a graph... Lots of amenities. Like, there are so many things that are great about the world that we live in. Mm. And at the moment, we feel overwhelmed by the things that are going wrong. And some of them, you know, genuinely, you know, things that we have to address, but some of them, you know, perhaps that we are. You know, because so many things are already... Great, mm. we have moved on to catastrophizing other things. So, mm. how do you prioritize what is important in regard to that?
1: Um, in terms of climate change or just generally?
0: Well, I mean, in terms of things that affect the planet versus things that affect your own life. You know, you talked to the idea of you were speaking to a friend of yours about climate change. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. It Doesn't really matter what your think, friend thinks of climate no, of course change, not, no. unless your friend is like the yeah, you know, my, chief my scientist my or mate not going to make works at Exxon or whatever. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like it doesn't actually. Who fucking cares what your mate thinks about climate change? Yeah. That's not really where no, no, the right. battleground of climate no, change. No, of course is. not. I mean,
1: that was just the battleground around a bloody campfire, right? Yeah.
0: Um, I guess it's that idea of, you know, how much difference. And I guess this is a big question now, right? And this is the question where you battle between imposter syndrome and what your role in the world is, right?
1: So I think my answer to that question is there's a couple of things. I think the first one is, and this is not something I have a conclusion for, but is how do you equate the greater good right so like you know we we've sort of broken it into really binary ideas like we see china when COVID happens and they because they're a communist country they can weld doors shut and they can fix it really quickly right for the greater good Mm. whereas we live in a you know a more um libertarian society where people are in charge have their own autonomy and agency and and in some ways whilst the greater good's important obviously our own feelings and emotions and well-being and agency are all important too and those two things don't always align so what's incredibly difficult in our society i think is that you you are asking a bunch of people who are struggling all of the time to prioritize something that is a problem for everyone possibly a problem a bigger problem for people in future generations and it is when they can't pay power and they can't pay for necessarily enough food and for people in those situation like those those problems are such a threat to their existence that it it is impossible. It, it, you can't ask them to be concerned about everything when they're just trying to keep their kids fed. And it's like, I've, I've had situations in my life where I've certain things have happened and I, and I, and you, and when you're under threat and you're under stress, you just, you close, you close in and, and, and fucking, I don't give a shit if, you know, like, like when our kids was born, we we're using a hundred nappies a fucking day, which is incredibly bad for the environment. It's like, well yeah but our kid's crying like so that's really difficult i don't know and i don't know if i can help to be honest like i don't have a good answer for for how we overcome our own basic sort of impulses other than we need to you know invest in structures and you know like good governments and to to do it for us so, all right, we, we've got to wrap up. We've
0: been fucking talking for ages yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's been very good. Yeah, it's I've, been lovely. I've enjoyed it. Fine. No, this question goes to what we were talking about anyway. So I ask everybody on the show, what they think happens when we die. Um, what do you think happens when we die? Cause obviously this is
1: something that you've this is something spent some time on. Yeah. Um, so obviously growing up, I wished what I wished would happen was I'd be, you know, reunited with my brother. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think it's just the end. I think it will probably be something similar to what it was before we were born. Um, and to me, that's a relief. I think, as you know, as much as it pains me that say so my brother's life was cut short at 13 and he doesn't get to keep going in heaven, or I um, I think I prefer, I, mean, I think it's far, all evidence suggests that it's the end. Um, obviously, we don't know, but I hope it's the end. And I, and I think it, it sort of talks to what we said before. It makes whatever portion of years we get on this earth even better and more special and more important if it if it's the end when, it, when we die.
0: Okay, so then it comes to that question, which is what we were talking about anyway before. Uh, I had to take a phone call, which was, what is the meaning of life? I, I, and obviously, I don't expect you to have an answer for 42. everybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, But what is the meaning of your life, at least at the moment when you look at your life? you know What, what would you describe the meaning of your life yeah, as? Yeah, I
1: mean, I think the meaning of my life... I mean, to be honest, I think the meaning of my life at the moment is to do my best to raise my three kids and be a good partner. That's clearly my... When I wake up in the morning, that's the thing... That I think about. That's the thing that I want to do. In terms of something sort of slightly more existential, I think I would like to have as much fun as I can. I would like to be present in the moment much, much more often. I feel like I've lived a lot of my life behind like a glass window a little bit, and. I think everybody else gets more out of you when you're just in the moment and enjoying yourself and you clearly get more of it and that will probably diminish the amount of regrets that you have. And I guess eventually I want to just be lying on a deathbed somewhere going, I had a crack.
0: Uh, Two more questions and then we're done. Mm Mm-hmm so i have a magic wand actually i'm going to give i'm going to go with three that's my podcast i get to do what you want do what i want three two i have two magic wands or one magic wand that is good for both these wishes the first one is you can fix one thing you can fix one thing in the world immediately with a magic wand what's the thing you do that is most beneficial to society
1: I don't want to give a boring answer but I think from a from a number from a lives perspective like keeping enough keeping more people extant it would be getting getting on top of climate change but I think for the here and now in terms of just global suffering I think it would be bridging inequality so I hate I really I mean I some of my OCD does actually spill into just like the idea of buying a coffee here. There's a $4.50 coffee here that, you know, could be a week of meals for someone over there. I mean, that thought plagues me a lot. And I just... The idea of kids suffering, I think it would be... I would I would make it impossible for people under 10 to suffer. That would be my... That's what I'd do Tough with... Tough on 11-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've
0: had it too good for too long.
1: <laughs> that's what I'd use my one for. 10 and under
0: okay this one is much more selfish you can have any skill in the world magic one style don't have to do your 10,000 hours you can just have this skill what would you like to be able to do really well or competently
1: I'd bat for Australia
0: yeah um, where would you bat
1: oh, I think probably like I mean, striding out at number says, three.
0: It says a lot about you. Whatever does, your answer, whatever yeah, your no, answer to it. this question is. I
1: think striding out at number three. Number three? Uh, yeah, okay. That's good. Where would you bet?
0: I've always seen myself as an opener. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, I don't really know why. It's dutiful. I think even in, yeah, I think even in my fantasies, I have an element of duty, like an element of <laughs> service. Yeah, I really do. I just want to stride out. It's like, you- oh, I won't ask anybody else to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. <laughs>
1: It's amazing you've constrained your
0: fantasies. <laughs> it's like the fact that I'm an off-spinner. Like, I mean? The least glamorous yeah. of all the bowling styles. And you can't
1: even bowl the doodra. In my
0: fantasy, that's what I've decided.
1: I'm the world's best off-spinner. That's amazing. Yeah, um, I think batting a number three for Australia. That's the thing I'd, yeah. that's the thing I'd borrow. What?
0: Were you um, a cricketer who enjoyed playing cricket? Oh, I loved it. Yeah.
1: I loved it. I just st- I could stand out there, just watching it, being with your mates, talking. Batting was amazing. Mo- I like the feeling of batting. I just loved it. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of my, especially when I got older, like everyone was like, "What the fuck are you doing? Playing cricket all fucking day in summer? Like go go to the beach or you know." And I was like, there's no place I would have rather be." And it's funny, like you know, I kind of kind of want to get back into it. It's pretty tricky when you've got three kids, but um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, people play cricket till they're seventy. Like I could, there's no reason I can't do it. Um,
0: yeah my dad uh, played until he was well into his at least late 50s but I think early 60s yeah what did he do he he was uh, an all-rounder he was actually a very good cricketer was he yeah very good probably in a different world like you know different generation he was a farmer but played like you know state Country level. Oh, so, so, like, you know, possibly could have ended up playing in like a, a BBL or a, you know, yeah, like right. one of those sort of things. But wasn't in the best 11 cricketers in the country. Probably wasn't in the best 30, but might have been in the best 50, you Amazing. know. Yeah,
1: which would get you in the BBL comfortably. Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: And particularly because he, he batted and he bowled. He bowled off spin himself. Off
1: spin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was a left, uh, right-arm bowler, left-arm batter. Probably what, a better batter than a bowler. What was his best figures? I know that on the d- he, he played cricket on the day of his wedding. He did not. He did. Yes. They had Well, they had a later wedding because he had to play cricket. Unbelievable. And he took uh, five and made ninety nine. What a day! Yeah, and got married. What well, day. I think in that match, he took for in 99, but one, he did one or the other and got married on that day.
1: Mate, who's had a better day than that ever?
0: I mean, it's a pretty big day. <laughs> <laughs> I did ask him what he was more excited about, the cricket or the wedding. He refused to answer. <laughs> God, it's
1: a shame you made 99. How'd
0: he go out? Don't know. Can't remember can't remember how he got out. Yeah, I'd love to report back on that. I played with him a lot when I was growing up, but he was a local sort of cricket legend. My brother's a really good cricketer. He was a good cricketer, but I never had the, the capacity for it. I never had the capacity to enjoy it. You know what it is? I think about cricket, the thing that I found the hardest was that you are condemned by, you can be condemned by one mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was a much better AFL footballer because you can make a mistake in AFL football and you pick just up and keep going, yeah. pick up and keep going. Yeah. Whereas like often in cricket, like, yeah. you know, you don't have that opportunity to recover from your yeah. stuff. I mean,
1: I certainly don't want to make it out that I was any good. I mean, I was no, nowhere near as... I had you almost better number yeah, three I mean, for Australia. Any of my mates just to be like, what's he fucking talking about? Yeah. I mean, yeah, he took like he took seven, for, <laughs> seven for 10 in the Bs in like year nine. It's barely a shot since.
0: <laughs> um, okay, final question. I have a time machine and uh, I can take you to any point in history. I can take you into the future. Mm-hmm. It's a round trip. Um, you don't have to do anything for the benefit of the world. This is purely for whatever you want to do. Well, it doesn't have to be observation. If you I want- to get involved. You can get involved if you want to get involved. I don't know what the ramifications of that will be, but I'm happy for you to do it in this hypothetical situation. (laughs) Um, uh, Firstly, I guess, would you take it? Because you're allowed to say you'd prefer not to. Um, I would absolutely take it. Okay. And would you go forward or backwards? Backwards. And where would you go?
1: I think I'd go and check out... Zero BC or AD or whatever it would be called in zero times. Okay, and just check out what was true and what wasn't.
0: What if after all these years of you convincing yourself it wasn't true, you went back in time and yeah. you found and out, out that it was all man. true?
1: <laughs> <It'd be brutal>. <laughs> <laughs> this is frankincense and myrrh fucking everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost certain that's what would happen.
0: <laughs> oh man, hey, hey, this has been really great fun. Yeah, I've, I've so really much. enjoyed this. Um, the, yeah, so uh, brains trust is the name of the podcast. It, it's super if you want to have a look back at 2020 and you know even just remind yourself of. I think it's been not just a huge amount of events this year, but it's also been a journey of how we felt about those events. And I think that the series does a really good job of.
1: Oh, good, mate! Thanks for your support. It's really kind. Yeah,
0: it's been well. You know, I mean, I wanted to have a listen, obviously, before we chatted. But like, I burned through them. I I found it really fascinating, and I thought that everybody came to play as well. Like all the guests, so
1: generous. Yeah,
0: have incredible you know in, incredibly interesting takes on things yeah and oh, you know that 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 is obviously part of the joy of it um the yearly which is of course the uh year in review yeah, uh, through uh, the eyes early. of the weekly yeah. um by the time people hear this will uh, will be available on abc iview you, yeah. uh but uh, people can go and check and, that and out and the
1: hard quiz uh kids special where tom gleason takes on for young kids now, a 10 year old two 11 year olds and a 12 year old
0: I'm, I'm there's a part of me that thinks this might be the biggest TV show of the year <laughs> I honestly feel like like High Quiz has obviously had an incredible couple of years yeah. but like but it's had a really fantastic year this year yeah. but I just feel like it's the perfect timing like when I heard about this I was like oh I'm definitely going to watch
1: that yeah, that's, that's deli- like, it's, it's delightful like um, yeah. I just finished editing it um, two days ago and Tom You know It was Just in Ripping form And they had um, Four kids um, One of them has The Simpsons As their topic One of them has The Melbourne um, Rail Network One of them has Harry Potter books And the other has Cardiothoracics <laughs> 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 It's lovely
0: Oh man I, uh, Thanks very much For doing this thanks, I Will.
1: appreciate it Appreciate it